Ready, Dave? What's up, folks? What's up, y'all? This is Don't Let's Start, a podcast about They Might Be Giants. I am Dave Fox. What? I'm just kidding. I am Jordan Cooper. You got me. And sitting to my left and to your right, if you were <laughs> peeking through my window. This is Dave Fox. Is Dave Fox. And we got a good one for you, folks. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh. all right. Oh. Yeah, so this is really exciting. We're going to make this very quick. Uh, on this episode, we have an interview with Bill Krause. Bill Krause. Thank you, Dave. Uh, Bill Krause, for those who don't know, as if there's someone like that out there. Come on. Bill Krause was their producer throughout the 80s. He was also their sound man at all of their, uh, most of their live shows in the 80s, at least from around, I, what was it, like 84 forward? Sure. So he ran the the tape backup, you know, that was playing the the rhythm section while John and John performed the songs. Yes. Right? And we've talked about him many times on this show as being a vital contributor to the 80s stuff yeah i mean he he's he was the main person who helped shape the yes. way those albums sound you know he had the experience you know going in that maybe john and john didn't have around the studio as far as we can guess and what was crazy about this happening this interview is that he doesn't live near us he lives somewhere else but he said hey i'm gonna be in new york for like two days <laughs> and he was really uh, generous enough to give us a heads up about that. I mean, he's, you know, he's visiting New York for two days to, to see a friend or whatever. He could do a lot right. of other exciting there things. There are better sights to see than <laughs> yeah, us. Than our faces. Um, he could go to the Statue of Liberty, Staten Island Ferry, Co-op City. <laughs> he could do all those things in that song. But instead he sat across from us at a table for like six hours. I while think it was uh, longer. We, yeah, while we interrogated him. Yeah. What, like, all right, who's Chesapeake's face? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I can't emphasize enough. That was insanely nice of him to give us that heads up. And, and we, yes. we went down to Manhattan and we met him. Bill was incredibly generous with his time. He's a giant guy, like nine feet tall. And, uh, I was very surprised. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, he, we talked a lot of... What did we talk about in this interview, Dave? We talked about politics. Yeah, yeah, a lot we of stuff about, about uh, Jimmy Carter. We talked about the best breakfast cookie. The best of times, <laughs> the worst of times. We talked about the dirtiest places to eat. <laughs> in New York or in New York, everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they might be giants. Yes, yes. There's a lot of talk about they might be giants. There's a lot of talk about where something I think a lot of fans don't know about, like his his origins, his background in music, all that stuff. And a lot of um philosophizing about what what he thinks about. A lot music. of waxing poetic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I know Dave Dave was quite taken with Bill. Uh he I think they got along really well. Famously. Yeah. Um, and I think they're going to put out an album together, yeah. Dave and Bill. Excellent adventure. <laughs> um, so anyway, I will, will not keep you from it. I want to say if, if you are appreciative of, of what we're doing here on this podcast, which honestly, it, in my view, like I feel like we keep topping ourselves. Like I didn't think this would ever happen. This was not a plan for the yeah. show ever to interview Bill Krause. And who knows who else is coming up with, with interviews. 
So if you're interested in supporting us, because because me and Dave were doing a lot of cool stuff here, I think. I'm so excited. I am excited about getting uh, some <laughs> some <laughs> money. Um, you can go to anchor.fm slash don't let start. That's not too many letters, right? It's not too hard. I already forgot it. Anchor.fm slash don't let start, or you can Google it and it'll come up, but don't let start. And there is a button that says support this podcast uh, that used to be a purple button. And I liked saying press the purple button, but they mm. changed it. Anchor, listener uh, <laughs> feedback. Maybe put it, make it purple again, because that was fun. So press that button. You know what it does. So before we get rolling on this interview, if you like what you hear and you want to give us an email, you can email us at don'tletstartpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at don'tletspod. Yeah, do you guys like tweets? Yeah, I don't, but yeah, me if you guys do. <laughs> but okay. for some reason, people seem to like these things, but uh, we, we keep the Twitter very active. So thanks so much. We really hope you enjoy this interview. And thanks again so much to Mr. Bill Krause. Again, we've been very lucky that everybody has been incredibly generous and on board yeah. um, with the interviews and the deep dives. So thanks yes. again to that. And here we go. Our interview with Mr. Bill, Bill Kraus. Oh. I have a first question that I didn't write here. So how did you, <laughs> this is very self-serving, how did you hear about our show? Because we're still trying to figure out how people hear I about it. I think I saw I saw it on the Facebook. Oh, the miscellaneous T Facebook. Facebook. Yeah. Okay. Which I, you know, I lurk and once in a while, I mean, I don't think I've, once in a while I post it. Do you like, get into just it? Just a little thing. Uh, with people? No. No. <laughs> I mean, it's always happy to see, and I'm gratified that people like it. And I'm I'm not without ego, you know? Yeah, I mean, sure. I, like, I'm glad that people like this stuff. That's why we did it. It's, yeah. We did it for ourselves, but not just ourselves. Yeah. You want an audience. Yeah. I'm so, well, it was, I'll just say, like, you know, when we got your email, it was very exciting and on, a, on several levels. One, because it's always exciting when someone emails when us. When anybody's listening. Yeah. Because um, we don't, we don't know. But two, it was just like, oh, like someone Heard it. who was involved in <laughs> the songs we talk about didn't hate what we did. Right. <laughs> like, it's, you know. It was almost like going in the right direction, at least. Yeah. So it felt like a good sign for yeah. us because it right. was kind of early on. And I was like, okay, this, because honestly, like, the show was so much what much work, and, and we're both so busy, and we constantly talk about, oh, should we take a break for a few months? Jordan we... was on the roof of the Empire State Building <laughs> when he got that, and, yeah. you, and you made him walk back. Yeah, I'm always kind of like, this, this is a lot of work <laughs> I have to do yeah. for something that is not, like, paying me. But um, it was also just cool to get into the minutia and, the, you know, and get some answers. and Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why I actually wrote it's like because you had serious questions and you were like <laughs> yeah. i really want to know this yeah. thing and i'm like well mm -hmm. i'm one of the only people in the world who actually know <laughs> yeah, that's crazy that um so i guess we can start at the we'll your beginnings the beginning. yeah like getting into what prepared you to produce music albums and like get be, know your way around a studio i think a stuff. producer is just somebody who um is a glorified turner of the bass and treble knobs <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> seriously you you want to you just want to tweak it and make it sound a little bit better and you start as a fan mm -hmm. you start as a fan and you go oh well if i turn the bass up it kicks ass or if i turn the <laughs> treble up i can hear the vocals better and you just get more and more of that and 
I was a music major in college and did recording and played in a band and actually met Flansburg because he recorded my band. Oh, um, what was your band? I was in a band called The Functionaires with Dan Spock. Oh, who okay. you yes. know was a childhood friend of Flansburg. Did you, did you you heard the Julie interview? I did. I didn't. I actually didn't listen to the whole that, thing. Was that interesting for you? Yeah, it was definitely interesting. In, in yeah, because I saw I saw Julie play. That's how I met. I saw them play. Uh, oh wow! In a dorm room. Oh I mean, in God. a dorm I common talk about dorm that. common room. Yeah. So Antioch College in yes. Springs, yeah. Ohio. Uh, I was in a band with Dan Spock called the Functionaires. So the Functionaires. I love these college band names. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I actually found a set list uh, from the when I was looking looking through shit for you guys. <laughs> yeah. We'll turn yeah. your shit into podcast gold. So, <laughs> so I was in a band with Dan Spock and Shell White, who was also New Flansburg, and uh, Eric Zimmerman, and we played at, at Antioch. We played out a couple of times as well. And Flansburg had a tape recorder, and he recorded us. Oh, wow. He recorded our demo, and that's how I met him. friends then we didn't we really didn't get to be friends until I got out of school I moved to Brooklyn he was going to Pratt and living in Brooklyn and I met Linnell through him because they were living in the same building did they really like magically end up at the same building without knowing that's I so think crazy. so or is well that... there were friends you know it's friends no friends and, yeah okay uh, I I wasn't part of that you know how they live together so I, <laughs> yeah. I don't know the answer to that mm-hmm. Antioch has a uh, it's a co-op Right, you spend half your time in school and half your time on jobs. And I got a co-op at a recording studio in Times Square, and was like making dubs and doing edits. They did a lot of commercials and jazz and stuff. And but being a producer is pretty much like if you say you're a producer and somebody <laughs> gives you a job, yeah. then you're a producer. Yeah. There's no there's no certification, right. there's no Interesting. there's no school. It's just you got to say you want you're doing it and convince somebody that you have the taste. There's no skill set. I'll say this when I interned at Dubway, everyone there was like 15 years younger than me and they knew their way around this uh, technical stuff and I was very um <laughs> one of the reasons I quit was I was just like I felt so I'm bad with technical stuff. Well, the difference is, it's the difference between being an engineer and being a producer. Oh, okay, sure. Right? To be an engineer, you have to know audio. You don't have to be, you know, work a slide rule, but you have to know how to use the equipment. You have to know how to get what you want out of it. To be a producer, you need to know how to work with musicians. You know, you need to have an idea of sound and how things work, not the technical. I, I had a job uh, for about six months for Andrew Lou Goldham, who produced the first six Rolling Stones albums. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he was working with Alan Klein, who was the Beatles manager. Right. Right. And because uh, I had I had a job in a recording studio. It was after I got out of school. And 
studio manager was had been the manager at the place where I had a co-op job, and he mm-hmm. hired me to work in the edit room, making dubs and doing stupid stuff. Mm-hmm. And one day, Andrew Oldham showed up with 40 boxes of tapes for a re-release project. Mm-hmm. Andrew Oldham was a great producer. The first, the early Stones albums are my favorite albums. I thought, I think they should have stopped making records after about 1969, personally. Um, but he knew nothing about engineering and didn't want to know anything about uh-huh. it. It wasn't, that wasn't what it was about. The producing was about helping mold the song and helping right. it be as good as it could be. And there's sort of two kinds of producers. There's the, there's the sort of Phil Spector, I am the record producer. And then there's the other kind, which is what I tried to be, which is Mm. help people make the record they would make if they could get out of their own way. Mm -hmm. Right. To be the person looking over the shoulder going, this is what you want. Right. Because we all have blind spots. We all, we can't see ourselves. People who produce their own records almost invariably end up really self-indulgent because you don't know how to cut out the fat, right? right? You're talking about cutting out the fat. You don't know how to do it because it all looks great. It all sounds great. I love this. I, you know, there's a cliche of sort of kill your babies, right? When you're making art and it's really hard to do for yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I always felt like my job was to be that. Pressing mute on tracks. Yeah. Be just to be the perspective to go, uh, the re- or the reality check and go, This is this the song that you want or not? So that's how I became, I mean, yeah. there's lots of intermediate steps. Yeah, you know, but, yeah. But that was sort of what led me towards it. Kind of reminds me of when I was in film school. Directing is similar. I loved shaping a thing into a thing. Directing directing so, is exactly an album yeah. producing. It is the same thing. You were, except when you're producing records, unless you're Phil Spector, you're directing the writer. Yeah. And the writer has a very strong opinion and should about what they created. And so it's a much more collaborative thing, I think, than just being a director and hiring actors Mm -hmm. and going, do what I tell you. It's, it's much more, everybody needs to be satisfied. Yeah. What, so what was the Functionaire's music like? <laughs> and what did you hey, play? <laughs> I played, uh, I, Dan and I switched off on bass and guitar. I had a, a beautiful Fender Jazzmaster, which I loved. Okay. I can tell you some song names. Oh, please um, do, please. <laughs> let's, there was, uh, If You Were Really Free, You'd Take Off Your Pants. <laughs> Love it. Um, uh, two arms, six legs, and a big hairy ass. Okay. Two for two. Uh, uh, I don't think I brought that. So long titles. Yeah, long titles. We called it atonal dance music. Uh, It was a lot of, it was very discordant. There was a lot, but with a beat, there was a lot of screeching. I would say, you know, influences range from like Perubu. Mm -hmm. uh, This was 1980, so, or 81, so Perubu, Talking Heads, you know, James Brown, Mm. Tried to be funky yeah. <laughs> for, you know, white yeah. kids in, in the Midwest. Yeah. <laughs> and so it seems like Flansburg was was a fan because if he offered to record you guys. Well, he was old friends with Spock. So okay. I'm not sure if he was a fan or not. You'd have, okay. to, you'd have to ask him. But okay. he was willing to record us. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was willing to record us. One so. day. As a little sequel to the Julie episode, anything you remember about those the early <laughs> the Turtlenecks gigs or the blackouts? Well, I wasn't there 
when the blackouts were happening. So okay. there was a lot of overlap because of Antioch's co-op thing. There were a lot of people. Not everybody was on campus all at the same time. Yeah. So the turtlenecks, I remember, as being really charming. And <laughs> and charming is the word. They were sort of winning and I don't want to say cute because that's a terrible word, but... Yeah, I could see it was kind of a warmth. There was kind of a warmth to it. You know, there was some sort of Jonathan Richmond type. They didn't sound like Jonathan Richmond at all, but there's kind of a winsomeness Mm. to it and a sincerity. Yeah. Which is hard to... It's hard to be sincere and not be cloying. Yeah, I I, I enjoyed him. But again, this was completely as sort of an outsider Mm -hmm. because, as I said, Flansburg and I didn't really become friends until a couple of years later. We really really didn't, we didn't really connect in any meaningful way until, Mm -hmm. until later. And did the Turtlenecks had like a lot more songs than on that one EP, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, they'd play for forty-five minutes or so. I mean, wow. they had a they had a repertoire. Jordan wants them. Yeah, <laughs> I just well, it's just so interesting how you know. I think there was they claimed at one point they had hundreds and hundreds of songs before their first album, or whether with the band or solo or before and for teenagers, whatever. You mean the Turtlenecks? No, or, just or, just or, John or, or and John Flansburg as, as a, Flansburg. And Linnell always had a lot of songs. Yeah. And when I started working with them, they already had a lot of songs, and Flansburg was always writing songs. So I don't know if it was hundreds and hundreds, but yeah. <laughs> there were a, there were a lot. And I've said this before, but the, I really think of the first two albums as a combined first album, right? Because yeah, almost all the songs on Lincoln could have gone on the first album if we had had wow. room and time to do them. Pretty much all those songs existed mm-hmm. went and had been played and we did out for a long time. So really, Flood was the first record that they had to write songs for the record. Wow. And some of those songs were actually yeah, in, I know, in I the suitcase, or, in the suitcase already yeah. as well, but not all of them. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of the songs, almost all the songs on Lincoln had been around for a long time. Can you talk a little bit about how you actually started having a working relationship? It started with... Spock lived in the house in Brooklyn, and I was still friends with him. And I sort of got to know Flansburg Linnell because I'd go over and hang out with Spock. I was working producing the first record I ever produced, which was a band in Burlington, Vermont, called Pinhead. So I was living in Vermont and I would come down every two weeks. I would take the plane down and go to Brooklyn to sign for my unemployment check because I was collecting unemployment, (laughs) which is what paid for me to be in Vermont to produce this record. And so I would fly down in the morning on People Express, which Mm -hmm. was like $29, and take the train into Brooklyn, go sign for my unemployment check, and then go hang out with Flansburg. And we'd play music, and he we would record stuff. And I remember we did a version of um, "I Want You Back," you know, the Jackson Five. Like, oh, okay. uh, and so we would. And he was always taping. He was a, he was a tape meister from when I knew him. And, and so he would play songs for me, and I would play rough mixes of this band that I was working with in Vermont. Mm-hmm. And we just started talking. And it was during that time that he and Linnell started 
working together and you know their performance at up in Central Park happened. Oh yeah, you know, that was before I did anything with them. Did were you so were you there? For I was that? not there for okay. that. No, I didn't. I didn't really know anything <laughs> about that. Got to find some witnesses until until after. And so I moved back to New York, mm-hmm. and John and John had done one or two shows out at Dr. B's. Yeah, yeah. And I went to see them at Dr. B's, and I think it might have been their first show there. It might might have been the second one, and I thought. They're great. And I said, I would want to be involved. And actually, at the time, there was still an idea that it would be a regular band. And so mm-hmm. in, in that oh, wow. there would be like a bass player and a drummer. Yeah. And so I, for a little while, for like a month maybe, actually rehearsed with them playing bass. Oh, wow. And never played out with them. Never, we never recorded anything. But it was, we auditioned some drummers. Yeah. And it became mm. clear very quickly that we were never going to find a drummer who was versatile enough yeah. to handle the range of work. And so we talked about it and I said, let's just, keep doing the tape, or we all said, I'm just not, wasn't my decision. <laughs> let's, let's continue doing it with the tape and I'll just take over the recording. Cause I had had, oh, I just finished okay. producing a record and I had engineering practice. And, uh, and at that point they were, the live show was, they had the tape machine on stage. It was a quarter track machine and they would just turn the machine on at the beginning of the show and let it run. Yeah. And they would just play along and it would go from <laughs> song to song. Yeah. And it was great, but it, could it could lent itself wrong. to <laughs> yeah. going wrong and yeah. and so I that's how it happened that's how and then I started sort of slipped into the engineer and producer role did we hear somewhere like they would put like a sombrero head on the tape machine in those first few shows or put a face there on was, it actually, an article. there was the, Flansburg did this great thing where it was a real to real quarter inch machine mm-hmm. and he had at least one show where on one of the reels he had pasted uh, like a circle with a face on it and a flap. And <laughs> as it went around, the flap would come down. And so as it went around, it would be a happy face. And then right. as it would uh-huh. go on, the flap would go on and it would be another picture. So oh, that's it was... It that was, is brilliant. I don't remember exactly <laughs> what the graphic was, but it was it was cool. It seems like all the graphic stuff is is Flansburg, but is do you think that really holds true, or did Linnell was he just like gave it the thumbs up? Linnell always had an opinion, and his mm-hmm. opinion was always really on point. But Flansburg was a graphic artist. I mean, yeah. he did that. He did paste up, and uh, and he went to art school, and and he had a great visual sense. Mm-hmm. Um, Although he and I did do this, I will show you this. Oh yeah, please. This, so here we excited. go, folks. There it is. <laughs> oh my God. That is the full art in context. Oh wow. This so when we amazing. interviewed Joshua Freed, I think he was looking for that. Yeah. Did you hear that? Place. Yes, I did. He, and, uh, he looked in his closet. We, we didn't record this part, but he looked in his closet for a while to, to get to to find this, but he couldn't find it. This, this was, was done on my 1985 Frida Mac. Frida was great. I I was just that's um, what we hear. Some old footage just surfaced. Did you see that? I know. I, I would love to see it. I um, love. I, I can love, send you the link. I definitely want to see that. I so, love Frida. Yeah, you definitely can't uh, unsee it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's Frida, was, Frida was great. Frida was. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, there was a lot of really crappy performance art in the East Village <laughs> in the eighties, and Frida and in the was, 2000s. Well, I guess all, <laughs> I, I guess always, but yeah. but oh, I I love Frida. 
Yeah, Flan- Flansburg and I did that this on my on my 1985 Macintosh 512K. Oh yeah, wait. Well, for context, lobby. we're talking about the ad for they might be Giants demo al- or demo album. I think the, the original wasn't really a demo. With the original Snowman, yeah. Yeah, with the Snowman with the ambivalent expression. So I, I love that <laughs> font and I love that Snowman. Yeah. Just as, yeah. as a oh, graphic so art cool. guy myself. Oh wow, look. As an artist. This was hilarious. There, yeah, there's Yeah, Joshua, so right? we we <laughs> found we got like Art in Context magazine, or, yeah. I mean Art in America and Art Forum, these really high toned, very erudite, pretentious things. And we just sort of grabbed articles at random and substituted adjectives and names of yeah. people who were performing in the East Village at the time. Well, you know, it's funny because Jordan and I both went to art school and we oh, went yeah. to SVA and I, I think this is kind of a timeless thing because yeah. you could have done that when we were going... Me and anybody could could have been in the wow. 50s too. We parodied know? that too in our sketchbooks and stuff. Oh, we would mm-hmm. do this fake and then in my film school I had a lot of um, yeah. film teachers. I had this one video teacher, video art and uh I, we made stuff to make fun of the stuff he would talk about. <laughs> well, it's funny. It's like, where's the place for the person who loves art, um, but not the pretension and the the fanfare around it? <laughs> How can you be genuine yeah. with it? Yeah, <laughs> a lot of it depends on who you're doing it for, yeah. and, and what you're trying to get out of it. Really, if it, because if you're not satisfying yourself first, and you're just trying to have people like you, yeah. then uh, you're doomed. I think you're just doomed. <laughs> So you got you and John did this together. Yeah, we did. Just and the two of you. Just the two of us. All these names. Yeah, all those names are made up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, these, we need... flower, these flowers are great. What? Who did that? Flansburg. Oh, uh, that, that actually probably came out of like a, a, a paste-up book or you know like oh, a clip art. I actually had a question. Um, not to jump ahead, but about the twenty-three song, was that thought of as a demo, or was that thought of like this is an album? Because it doesn't, you know what I mean? Like, no, we sold it. I mean, we yeah. sold it as a product. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is just labeling, right? We had songs that we were recording, and we were always recording because we needed to record for the shows because all of the tracks were on tape for the live shows. Mm-hmm. And we also were recording stuff to try to get to get shows. And so things that started out as demos made their way onto what became the 23 song collection we didn't set out to make a 23 song cassette yeah we just started accumulating stuff and we had a bunch and it became a thing Mm. and that's why there are all these different versions of demo collections there was never a this is this demo and this is that demo Mm. it's we need to send something out. What have we got? Sure. Okay. And so this might have three songs and this might have five songs. And it wasn't a, you know, there, there were never clear-cut divisions of this is this thing and this is that thing. A lot of yeah. it is we need to send some things out to club owners and this is what we're sending out mm-hmm. this week. Interesting. So. That explains. Because, yeah, on the wiki, there's all these various demos that are just kind of it's random. Yeah, it's, it's one of them. Confusing. One of them has "You'll Miss Me" is listed as "You Kill Me," which I thought was interesting. I think it's easy to impute intention. Yes. To something that was not intentional at the time. At the time, the intention was, "We want to get shows," and how do we do that? It wasn't that the, these these things were not artifacts in and of themselves. They were yeah. things that we were that had utility to try to get yeah. us work. <laughs> yeah. Next step. yeah, they were trying to, they, and so there was no 
preciousness and there was no sort of archival intent really. It was that we're just doing this because we need to send something to a club owner to try to get a job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we can talk about some of those early demos, like the, the wiggle diskette is something that's pretty interesting. For the listeners, Bill has a folder uh, full of stuff <laughs> that we're I, trying to peek at. <laughs> I, thought, I thought I brought a couple of the wiggle diskettes with me. I didn't. Oh my god. And I do have this though. We're trying not to jump oh. across the table. Oh my god. Oh. Gee whiz. Oh, this is interesting. Ooh. I think that was just a list of songs to uh, sort of decide what to put in a sh- in the show. Exploding okay. invitation. Yeah, that's a that's it. That one just resurfaced. Which one? Exploding invitation. A fan uh, found it. I don't even remember what that is, honestly. I yeah, haven't heard it. In that resurfaced ever. only a year ago. You probably have access to more of these things than <laughs> I do. Because the fans just they recorded it off the yeah. dial a song, and oh, I mean it's just everywhere. Yeah, well, things have shown up of shows that I had no idea were even recorded. Did you have any, or did Flansburg or Linnell have any inclination at all when you guys were starting out that there would be this kind of intense? fan community involved in this or was that the hope or was let, let me say this about that mm. fuck no right <laughs> i mean let me rephrase that <laughs> flansburg might have thought that no yeah. oh, really flansburg always had a vision and was very strong and was always working towards making it go to the next level mm-hmm. i hoped that people would like it and it would be successful the idea that there would be 35 years and 20 albums Later, yeah, who would have any idea that that would be possible? Nobody, yeah. nobody could have predicted yeah. that. You know, it's funny because we, you know, about like state songs, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, it's like you see their both of their work ethic because state songs. Linnell says he he's written over fifty of them. Like he's like I wrote multiple. Wait a ones minute, how many state. states are there, Jordan? Well, so there's fifty, but he said he's he's like, oh, I've got a bunch for the same state. I you mm. know cancel some out. Okay, and, okay. It so, out. but it's like the one volume fine, came out. And then just nothing for like 20 years. And then it's just, and it's yeah. like, whereas if I feel like if it was Flansburg state songs, we'd be seeing volume six. Of yeah. State songs you know, I don't, I mean, I could be wrong, but I, that's the vibe I get is like, <laughs> it's just harder for some people to get out there. Um, I mean, I feel that way about, <laughs> but still being super prolific, prolific and so, but yeah, yeah, but like making it public, putting a spotlight on yourself. Yeah. Look at me. Yeah. Linnell never seemed like that. Yeah. I think that's the, that is what makes them unique. That's that yeah. it is, it is that combination of drive and being laid back and, mm-hmm. and work ethic and naturalness and, uh, and they, each play to each other's strong suit in a really powerful way. I definitely wanted to ask you about just like that personal dynamic of like, I guess you're in the middle of them or to the side of them, whatever. I was for a while, yeah. <laughs> yeah like just having, I don't know if there's any uh, anecdotes or things you remember about that being played out in real time in front of you. <laughs> Cause it's something we talk about a lot because that, that dynamic comes out in the songs and it comes out in the- what, Yeah, I think, I think you learn what you need to know from the songs I mean, yeah. and, <laughs> Working with them, they each had very strong ideas about, and still do, but yeah. <laughs> I'm just talking about when I was with them, mm-hmm. uh, had very strong ideas about how they wanted things to go and things that they really cared a lot about and things that they were more laissez-faire about. Hmm. Yeah. And you never knew in advance which it was going to be. <laughs> Interesting. But in terms of, there's two things to look at, of course. There's what you're doing 
musically and then there's what you're doing to advance a career. And I think that were it not for Flansburg, Linnell would not have the career that he's had. Mm-hmm. Were it mm-hmm. not for Linnell, Flansburg would not have the career he's had. Interesting, they yeah. they needed each other. They need each other, and and they fed off each other in a really powerful way. Mm-hmm. Flansburg was the one who was going and pinning up. Yeah, flyers, and I would do that as well. Oh, really? We would go around the East Village and staple flyers. To I once it. got a fine for doing that. We would do it at, <laughs> late at night when there was nobody around. Uh, that's Be very careful. Yeah, Flansburg was always much more invested in making the band a success. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I don't think either of them would argue with that. To bring it to the those early live shows, though, like pre first album live shows, though, mm-hmm. I do when we do see footage and, and or hear the mp3s of those it is interesting though how linnell kind of comes alive on stage like you would never guess him to be like an introvert or oh no like, he's a he's a great performer <laughs> yeah. he's he's a really natural performer and like hilarious they, and yeah he's, very, he's funny know, and silly. they and they play off each other really well yeah. and <laughs> all of the sort of non-musical funny stuff mm-hmm. sort of hats and wigs and masks and all that stuff was was definitely both of them. There was no... It wasn't like okay. Flansburg was driving this funny bit and Linnell was this introverted yeah. Yeah, guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. guy in the basement who was just writing songs. They were both really involved in it. I always find people are more complicated than just like the, you know... I, I'm always interested in when it goes against the preconceived thing yeah. about them. You know, you mentioned hats and wigs. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember any other? Would you care to elaborate? Those, Not really. <laughs> those, those antics at the early shows that there's rumors about. It's so interesting to me because they have some antics still in their shows that we'll see. But you know, it's mostly a rock yeah, show. The avatars of they. It, or yeah, and and that yeah exactly, and that stuff. The stick. That <laughs> we had the stick. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I'm trying to remember if, if the stick was me originally. We we toured with a stick. <laughs> like he held you. We toured. No, no, that I that I found a stick for Flansburg. To, uh, yeah. I don't know if I could take credit for that. We did tour with like particular sticks. Yeah, yeah. And and I will take credit for giving the stick its own sound. Bill, we're gonna do uh, lie still little bottles and prepare the uh, incredible bubble machine. Bill. I placed the microphone by the stick. Ladies and gentlemen, direct from Lincoln, Massachusetts, the stick! 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 The stick's solo album is coming out on Polygram Records. It's funny, because I, I have... Um, very early bootlegs, and even in those, the audience is yelling out for the stick. The stick before it even shows up. On oh yeah, the, the stick was a big star. You got the yeah. hotel room and couldn't trust the stick around around the fans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the stick was an asshole when he got yeah. drunk. Doing coke off himself. Is, yeah. Is there any other? Because um, fans know about the stick pretty. Uh, <laughs> is there any other like? The hammocks. Yeah, the hats, the hammocks we talked about. Though I think the hammocks never really happened. No, there were there were not to my knowledge. Yeah, there were <laughs> never actually any hammocks. There was a lot of talk about things. A lot of it was it was really just a desire to be entertaining. Yeah, and yeah. it wasn't. We tried not to be precious about it, and yeah, yeah. it was let's be entertaining. And if and if it's funny and surreal and plays off the rest of what 
was happening, then it, it worked. And just to stand out, I'm assuming, too, because you're having these, these acts night after night in the 80s. Yeah, do you remember any of the performance art stuff that oh, surrounded you guys? There were some great, there were some really great performers. There was um, Ethel Eichelberger, who, who was a, uh, this great drag performer who did, like, classic works in drag. The two clubs that stood out to me were Dorinka, where a million people did shows, uh, and 8BC. Mm-hmm. And there was some overlap between them. But Dorinka, they had the Church of the Little Green Man there. They had uh, 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 Tom Murray in the Alien Comic did shows there. He was great. One of the funniest things I ever saw in my life was uh, yeah. a performance at Dorinka. It was Steve Buscemi mm, yeah. and and Mark Boone Jr., mm-hmm. who was an actor, was like on uh, Sons of Anarchy, I think, recently. Oh, wow. Uh, I think, I, I didn't watch it, but I think he was on that. Mm-hmm. And they performed together and they did this bit that was, it was two Hare Krishnas who had been stuck in an elevator for three days uh-huh. <laughs> and and just getting on each other's nerves. <laughs> and one of them's going, come on, let's chant. That's going to get us out of here. And the other one's, I'm so fucking tired of <laughs> chanting. I don't, I don't want to chant anymore. Oh, my God. Like, well, what do, you, what do you want to do? I don't know. We could sing something. Well, what do you want to sing? I don't know. How about, how about King of the Road? <laughs> and then they went into this version of King yeah. of the Road. It was it was. It still stands out as one of the funniest yeah. I have ever seen in my life. That's that's great. We we both did open mics for a while, and there was a lot of like stuff like that. But none of it. I don't. None of it impressed us much. The sort of nineteen eighty three to eighty eight or mm. or eighty nine. There was there were a lot of clubs that came and went really fast, and people would try stuff, and there were venues to let them try it, mm-hmm. and some of it was great, and some of it was lousy, and but there was a, a kind of willingness to see if it worked. People weren't precious about it. It wasn't, you know, there were people who were pretentious and artsy and annoying, yeah. <laughs> but mostly it was people just trying to do interesting work and willing to explore what that meant in ways that weren't traditional. I think a little of that has probably gone away just because, you know, everything costs more now and everybody's uh, worried about getting, you know, what's coming through the door and what the bar is going to make and what's your draw, how many people you're bringing I think in. it's really taking chances. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think it's really context is everything and where where it is and what the socioeconomics of the neighborhood are and what draws people to a neighborhood and the East Village was still cheap. It was sort of club, art gallery, drug front, you know, at one, two, three, and because rent was really cheap and people would open a club and maybe the police would shut them down eventually or the mob would come in and want to be paid off eventually and they would move somewhere else. Mm. But there was a lot of, there was a lot of mixing going on. And I think that's really cyclical and it really depends. So you're not going to see that in the East Village now because the rents are too high. So it's going to happen in Queens or it's going to happen in yeah. Staten Island or it's going to happen in you know, Bismarck, North Dakota. Having that willingness to, to try stuff is, is everything. What made us lucky, mm-hmm. I think, 
what made John and John lucky and, and me by extension was that we played a lot of, we played open mics. We played CBGBs on Tuesday night for, you know, our share of the door and maybe we'd make $2 a piece, but it gave us stage experience. Yeah. And then when the scenes quote unquote started to happen and the pyramid club opened and Dorinka opened and these other places, we were already there. We were, we were ready to go on because we had been working already. So timing is everything. What was their experience with like stage fright or nerves before going at a show? Because we've talked to every, a couple of people about this and, and it's something I'm fascinated with, cause, you know, because I've, I've never, it never really lessened for me over years of performing. You got to drink more. It was never an issue as far no. as, as far as I saw. Um, there was always a buildup to the show yeah, and sort of that excitement <laughs> and anxiety. Is it going to be good and are we ready and is everything going to happen? But as far as actual stage fright, I, I didn't see it in either of them. I had performed, as I was saying, I was in a band with, yeah. with Spock and I always sort of expected that, that I would freeze up. And, but it's, uh-huh. frankly, a lot of it is just not caring. Mm. <laughs> and, What's that like? Well, and, and and but I mean, not caring in the in the good way, which yeah, is no, I know. which is to go for me, and everybody has their own take on this. For me, it was if I can satisfy what I'm trying to get done, then I don't really care that much what the audience thinks. I want them to have a good time, mm-hmm. and I want it to be as good as possible, and I want them to share in the experience. But it was for me first, and. I think that when you're in a band, it's not just you personally. It's you want your everybody in the band to be happy, and you want to feel like you're holding up your end of the bargain, and and that everybody is satisfied with what's happening, and that if you're doing a good job, other people will come along for the ride. Mm-hmm. And if that's what you go into it with, then stage fright isn't part of it because you're not worried about what the audience is going to think because they're just there. I I did shows, in addition to playing music, I acted for a while. And oh, really? I did a play where there were like three people in the audience, and I didn't care. And, and also, when sometimes when the show is over, if people come up and say, that was really great, and you know it was crappy... You don't care. You don't care if somebody thinks it was good. If you know in your heart that you did Mm, a a lousy job and vice versa, if you think like you really killed it and people don't respond, that's they missed out. I was going to say, you know, being in a band a number of years, uh, it seems like nobody's ever been happy. We've all never been happy on the same night after after a show, no matter what anybody says. Mm. Like, I'll come off like, oh, man, that was a great show. And, you know, the drum will be like, oh, I missed that symbol during that song, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So I totally get what you're saying, where it's like yeah. your whatever you amplify in your mind, that's the show that night for you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's true. Is there any standout show? So from yeah, the, there's two aspects to what you do: your the, the live sound man stuff, and then the, the album work. Mm-hmm. Is there any standout like live experiences from those time from the '80s or like any? We did. Either, something we going did wrong or well, right. <laughs> well, I will say that the only time I ever got introduced from the stage was when something went wrong. <laughs> Hold on. It's a groovy song and it's a groovy beat. It's the slow dance number of They Might Be Giants.
You want to try again? Yeah? You want to just go to the next one? Yeah, turn down the uh, sh- searing high end of the rock manager no voice way. at the beginning. No way, no way man. Because I can't uh, no understand way. any of the music. No, it, the, the audience needs to hear that. <laughs> I can't understand the word you're saying, bro. Well, let me I don't know, there seems to be a breakdown. Oh, I can turn the monitor up for you. No, you can hear me. No, don't, don't turn the monitor down. That was the whole problem. Okay. I have a bunch of bootlegs where they it's talk like, to you. Our sound man, Bill Krause, yeah. when you know the tape didn't work or yeah. something happened. So I, I have some of that. Uh, I, I was, it was just kind want. of a joke. <laughs> it was just kind of a joke after a while. Bill, it's kind of boomy in the monitors. Not sure what to suggest about that. Uh, uh, check. Uh, 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 uh. That sounds better. That's good, Bill. Thanks. Mr. Bill Crass, running the board. The guy with the broken foot. You know Bill means something to us because we dragged him all the way down here by his good foot. He can't lift equipment. He must be important. I mean, the shows that stand out to me were the the series. So we did... Every weekend, uh, one summer at Dorinka, we did six shows in a row at the Pyramid Club. And those were really fun because people would come back week after week and we'd try to do something different every week. Oh, and yeah. So I don't, I don't know if I can say there's any one in particular we go, this was the killer show. But as a, a set of experiences, those were really fun. And they're doing that, you know, they do that now with their Williamsburg Hall hall shows and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. they'll do four shows and try to do something different every yeah. night so maybe that's where that came we try to keep it interesting yeah. for themselves as well as for other for people sure. you don't mm-hmm. to try to keep it from getting stale you always want to do something something that keeps it fresh and I you know hats off to them for playing the songs that they wrote 35 years ago and that's what fans want to hear and <laughs> yeah. we, we gotta do it yeah. how do we how do we make it so that we don't hate it and ourselves, <laughs> yeah. and I think they do a good job. Did yeah. that make it harder for you because they had such a big catalog that was constantly changing, or were you just game for anything? I was along to make it happen. It evolved over time to, to in a variety. So when we started, I was doing just the recording, and I would do the mix from the soundboard. But Flansburg still controlled the tape on and either let it run or turn it on and off, and it took. A while before he was willing to let me turn it on oh, and really? off from <laughs> from the the soundboard. So first we had the the quarter track machine, and so the show he would edit the show tape and go, oh, "We're going to do this song and this song," and know in advance mm-hmm. exactly what the order was going to be. Then for a while we did it on cassette, where we would have two or three songs on a cassette, and then they could go, they could switch it up, because I could go this cassette, and oh, let's do this now, and so I'd pop the cassette in and do it. Mm -hmm. The sound quality, of course, not the greatest, Uh but because they had so many songs, it was, nobody got bored. We would never get bored. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask about, so like, when a song slowly leaves the show, and then never comes back again. Was there any discussions about that, or does it just kind of happen naturally? I worked with them for five years, Yeah, and I would say it was not so much that a song would 
be consciously pushed out, it's mm-hmm. that they were always writing new material, and there's only so many songs you can do in a show. Yeah. So by its nature, if you're going to bring in a new one, you might have to push an old one out, and you know how that happened was a mystery. Okay, so wait, let, let's we can talk about the wiggle diskette, I think, right? So it's everything right is wrong again, and mm-hmm. you'll miss me, which is right. an interesting <laughs> combo. What's, do you remember anything about either picking those two or what, or or just the whole I, the production I think, of that? Well, I think that there was no, to my mind, there was no distinction between the sort of pop, right. hook laden, yeah. <laughs> audience pleaser, and something like "You'll Miss Me" or "Toddler Highway" or you know mm-hmm. a, a songs that "Rabbit Child," whatever that mm-hmm. that a lot of people think of as the sort of weird side of them it was all the same to me and so what i would i i can say i don't remember the exact thinking that went into it but i will say that we would want contrast we would want to yeah, not just true. not just have two songs that were the same mm-hmm. um would want them to show each other off i find it interesting because i, I you know, if we're going to call that like the first release that they really made, and it's like one of the songs is a rap song. So it's like, <laughs> what do people think the band is? <laughs> then it's the only rap song they've ever done. So it's kind of funny to me that half of their first release is rap and then never comes up again. And I would have to say that it was never discussed as a rap song. Mm. <laughs> and and Interesting. I never <laughs> thought of it as rap. Oh really? I, I thought of it more as it's kind of like whisper hip hop. <laughs> it's like its own genre. Whisper core. Because in that in that version, he's kind of whispering. Yeah, we should say it's a different version. Yeah, it's not the same version as on yeah. Lincoln. Used to. Yeah. More spoken word. Yeah. You'll always miss my big old body in his prime and never shoddy as bloodhounds wait down in the lobby. You'll eulogize my big old body. You'll miss me with effigies lighting up your house like Xmas trees as tears. There's a lot of Flansburg that comes out of sort of the weird side of Motown and mm. and soul music. Not so much rap of what was happening in in the 80s, but right. sort of kind of an extension of the weirder side of soul music and and R and B. It is interesting because, like, so, so soul, like the the you know the meaning of the word soul and like the what it's implying in the genre is that this is music from like the the heart, the gut, or mm-hmm. whatever. And I, we always talk about how John Flansburg's style, there's like this irony and there's like this parody to to things. And so, do you think that has something to do with his fascination or his being a fan of, of soul, like? Because, like, not that his stuff isn't from the gut or from the heart. I think there's always been a simultaneous, there have been simultaneous threads of sincerity and commentary and sort of meta-commentary on genre that are happening at the same time and that there's no reason to think that you can't do both at the same time. That, I think I, I said one of the first things he and I did together was do a cover of a Jackson 5 song. Yeah. And it didn't sound anything like the Jackson 5, mm-hmm. but it sounded exactly like the Jackson 5. <laughs> and and it was both a parody and a complete homage to, this is an incredible song. Yeah. And, 
And I think a lot of that flows through what he does, that he loves these genres, but he's incapable of just being a, a, a slave to genre. Mm. I, I get what you're saying. I think that comes from really understanding your craft mm-hmm. and knowing it so well that you have this reverence and sort of like, I know exactly what everybody's going to do. So I can, I You're can, not a slave I can to twist it. it around any way I want. And some parts of it maybe are silly. You know, I, I, was, I was a music major in college and I studied music theory. And music theory you learn as a bunch of rules. You go, yeah. this is how you do key changes and yeah. this is how you do counterpoint and you're, this is how you have moving voices. And, but when you listen to the music that music theory is based on, those people had no idea what the rules were. Right. They were making it up as they went mm-hmm. along. My favorite composer is Haydn. I love Haydn. And I love Haydn because he does exactly what you expect and then what you would never expect. Because he didn't know that you're not supposed to immediately go off into left field. But he knew what worked for him. And I think that Flansburg and Linnell have that a very similar kind of thing where they know what standard practice is, but they're not bound by it. And people who are slaves to rules can make really good craft, but they're not going to make art. Um, well, along those lines... Uh, Let's let that sink in. Yeah, that's no, like really... Um, <laughs> they're, the cover of 1999 that they would do live... How, so how does that fit into what you're talking about? I have about? no idea. We've already played a clip of it. It's them yelling gibberish mm-hmm. and it's very fast and you can when it gets to the chorus that's when you go oh it's 1999 and i think it's really funny and but so is it like yeah like the intention behind that not that i need to know the intention but if there's any <laughs> well that seems like it's a pretty good example of what we were just yeah and i think where it's like liking something and then kind of needling it a little bit yeah and i think a willingness a willingness to make mistakes and a willingness to make a fool of yourself and a willingness yeah. to be silly is <laughs> is a good thing. There's particularly if you're if what you're doing I don't know, I I could get very sort of pretentious and, and oh, theor- theoretical. Get it. Get it, Bill. I, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I will say that the music that there's sort of two kinds of music that interest me and that is music that completely embodies its genre and music that transcends its genre. So you can take a country song and do an archetypal country song that has got every country thing, and you go, that's the perfect country song. Yeah. But then you can do, you know, number three and yeah. go, this is a country song yeah. that is that is taking those elements and using them for some other purpose. Ultimately, that to me is the most interesting kind of stuff because it then expands what the genre is defined as in the first place. So I was talking about Haydn before. Haydn invented classical music in a lot of ways. You know, it came out of the Baroque and sort of midway between Bach and Mozart and there was no playbook there were no there was no rules so he invented what people have been doing for 250 years so this is this is the this is the pretentious thing i'm going to say yeah there's mozart who was perfect everything mozart did was 
pretty much perfect and embodied the genre. Mm-hmm. Mozart took what Haydn did and perfected it. And the, so there's almost none of the surprise that you get in Haydn, but you get the perfection. The form is absolutely there. Mm. And then there's Haydn who subverts the form, who takes the form and uses it to go in unexpected directions. And so there are people who love Mozart because Mozart is like this jewel. It's this perfectly faceted, everything is exactly where it should be. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's beautiful, but less interesting <laughs> yeah. than Haydn, who will take you exactly to that same place and then go completely in some surprise direction. And not that they might be giants was Haydn or Mozart, but yeah. that willingness to take a genre and use the elements of the genre to go in unexpected directions. That's one of the things that made it so much fun. I See, I've always had this theory about Flansburg, not knowing him at all, but just what I gather is I feel like he wants to lose himself in a genre wholly without the irony part, but it just like, it just can't happen a hundred percent like monopuff, you know, that's like, I, I, I just want a funk band. This isn't, they might be giants. This is its own thing. So take all your preconceived, they might be giants things away. Cause I, I need a new, cause those songs could have been, they might be giants. Yeah. No, no one would have blinked an eye at yeah. it. But, um, so it's like, Oh, I get this great, like funk bass player. And these are just funk songs, but then you listen to it and they're great. I, I'm a huge fan. They're great yeah, songs, but there's still something there that you can't really play it There's for just, that curdle that you can't, you can't play escape. it for a person who is just like I'm a big fan of funk music because they'll be like what is this <laughs> he, he is who he is yeah exactly Always. but I find that like I don't know if you, it's a conscious thing or I don't know I think Flansburg sometimes wants to be cool and Linnell I don't think could care less about being cool I if think, you compare Monopuff and State see, Songs I'm not, I think they're both cool I, I, America I'm not sure that I agree with that yeah, <laughs> I think that part of what makes the partnership work mm-hmm. is they each sort of seem to fall into those roles. Mm. But I think Linnell cares a lot. Yeah. Right? And I think Flansburg is naturally the way he is. Mm-hmm. That he, he's, not, he, he's not pretending <laughs> anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I I think that they're both, and the, so that they both partake of what you expect of the other. I mean, I feel the same way when I I try to make it. So like, let's. There have been. There was one time I was listening to a lot of like indie music, like lo-fi indie music, right? And then I was like, I got really inspired. I was like, I'm gonna make like a lo-fi indie little demo, and I have the same problem. I'm like, I I want it to, to have that same vibe, that kind of I don't care lo-fi cool indie vibe, but. We are who we are. To me, it just comes out as kind of nerdy sounding. We are. <laughs> well, I think that's a really positive quality that no matter what you do, you're going to be you. Uh, yeah, 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 I think I you, really love that. I think you got to embrace it. Yeah, you yeah. Um, you just got to know who you are, or find out along the way. Right. <laughs> so that that I guess the 23 song demo tape or whatever. Um, how was that recorded? Was that recorded the same way that the rest was? Yeah, like the a lot of it. Albums? I mean, we. Yeah. So. I can't tell you where every song was recorded and how it was all done, <laughs> yeah. but a lot of it, a fair amount of it was done in Flanberg's apartment. Mm. Um, a lot of 
recording we did at this place, Studio Pass, which was a public access sound studio, and it was uh, they were a nonprofit. They had an A-track studio, and they had this really, really cool early sampling uh, keyboard, the Fairlight, which uh, was sort of pre-emulator. And one of my really good friends from Antioch was an engineer there, and so we would go there after hours. They closed at 10 p.m., and they were charging, I think, $15 an hour, and we couldn't really afford that. (laughs) So Alex would let us in, and we would work from 10 p.m. until we couldn't stay awake anymore. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of stuff was recorded there, and some of it, I think, were, were tracks that might have made their way onto the first album. Like we recorded like some of the initial tracks, but um, so there was most of the first album was done at pass and at Dubway Mm -hmm. uh, with, with Al. One thing that um, they mentioned was that they tried over and over again to improve on toddler highway, but ultimately went with the first idea of it. Do you have any idea what that's about? Do you remember different versions of that song or we tried a lot of things all the time. I mean, one of the nice things about having cheap recording and guys who were really creative was that you just try stuff and see if it worked. Mm-hmm. And so I don't remember the various versions, oh, right. but, <laughs> but I don't think it was that unusual yeah, for, yeah. for things. To, and, you know, if you listen to Dial-A-Song and almost everything, once Dial-A-Song started, before there was Dial-A-Song, there were just demos and things happened. Yeah. But Dial-A-Song started really early when Linnell broke his arm. And then that just became the incubator for everything. And so you can always, see, you go back to any of the Dial-A-Song stuff, all of that yeah. is really different from how things ended up on later releases. And there were, so there were almost always at least two versions of everything and sometimes way more than that. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Some of them are extremely different. Yeah. Like totally different songs, except for a phrase yeah. is the same. Do you remember um, them getting a label? Like then really st- stuff starting to move forward. So Glenn Morrow, who was in a band called Rage to Live, worked with a guy named Tom Prendergast, who owned a record store in Hoboken called Pier Platters, and they started a label. And that was bar none. And Glenn was a fan and came to us and let's make a record. So yeah. Yeah. through those early shows or through the passing of the tapes from the live stuff or I think he came to shows. Yeah. Mm. I don't know how he I mean, I don't know how anybody became a fan. You know, we we were, <laughs> we, yeah. we were out. I mean, we were it was one of those sort of, you know, famous in an eight square block yes. radius. Yes, yeah. Um in in the East Village scene, there pe- people knew who they might be Giants was, and if you were if you were going to clubs there, you were gonna or walking by a light pole that had a flyer on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of those. We'd go out a lot and put flyers up on poles. Is there anything that jumps out on the first album that's like either a recording experience or just something that you there's like a subtle thing in the mix you're proud of or anything like that? So let's see. I love all these songs. Yeah. Just even before we get to song by song, you said you were re- recorded another band before, Pin, Pin Pinhead. Head. So what what was it like just going back into the studio and, I mean, just in general? So were you jumping from the live mixing stuff and bouncing between the disciplines? Or So I started doing the live sound 
because I wanted to protect the recording, the the in studio recording. There's two there's two kinds of jobs. There's jobs where you try to make it good, and there's jobs where you try to keep it from sucking. <laughs> and going into a studio, you're trying to make something good. You're trying to come out with something you didn't have before. You're trying to create something. Live sound, you're just trying to prevent disasters. You're working against the acoustics, against the equipment, what, whatever it is. And as you get more successful, that can even become harder because you're playing bigger clubs and sure, yeah, yeah. sound is way better now than it was. Even in crappy clubs, <laughs> they generally have better sound systems. And we were playing places that had these unbelievably crappy hmm. PV mixers and very little monitor setups. And when John and John were playing with tape, if they were actually going to play with the tape, they needed to hear the tape. And if you had no good monitors, oh, they couldn't the hear the tape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> the so live sound was something that, what, was, what turned me on was going into the studio and going, let's make this thing that people can listen to mm -hmm. later. And I became a live sound engineer to sort of protect my investment in yeah. in th the rest of it. That makes a lot of well, sense. Well, it's like a boot camp for that almost because in the studio, then you get a second chance. <laughs> You're like, we can fix something. Now. We have the time. We can. There were great shows. I loved doing shows. Sometimes they, they ended up being really, really fun. But it was always a struggle against yeah. the environment. And in the early recordings, actually, in the studio, it was also a struggle against the environment because we were working in studios that were $15 an hour and, you know, didn't have great equipment and great mics or whatever. And uh, the first album, I think we spent $5,000. Um, and that That's was like a huge, <laughs> huge investment. Well, I've always been impressed by how it sounds, how these, all, both the first, you know, the 80s albums sound because they're, like we've talked about, like they're, it's like eight tracks or whatever, but... I've never once thought this is a smaller budget. This is like it's never occurred to me. Maybe, Thank you. Maybe just as a fan, and but it's, I've never and I st even with perspective and their later albums, I still don't listen to it and think it doesn't sound full. It doesn't sound. Thank really you. Well. I mean, we worked really hard. Yeah. So, no, and we yeah. we wanted that, and there were definitely compromises that we had to make just because of what we were doing. But we tried to overcome those limitations and. You know, if you listen to the records they made once they got on Electra and, and beyond, you can tell that they were done in in bigger, oh, yeah. better studios. They, I think we did the best we could with what we had. Yeah, but some of that is aesthetic because, I mean... Some of it is, Because yeah. we're going to talk about those later albums in the God knows when, but... Um, Twelve years? Yeah. yeah. You work your way up. I have it. a kind of, per, like, <laughs> running joke in my head that we're never going to get to flood. We're just going to keep doing <laughs> 80s episodes, and I find it very funny because we get a lot of... We get a couple people being, when are you going to get to flood? But, you know, I, I do think I like how, like, Lincoln sounds more than uh, Flood. You know, or or Apollo eighteen. I think like it sounds um, like weirdly bigger to me because the sounds are maybe a little more upfront. Whereas like Apollo eighteen, there's there's like a kind of a there's kind of a bed of of reverb that glues everything yes. together on the on the later studio albums. That, yeah, that I noticed that. They're, yeah. they're definitely the both the first album and Lincoln are drier. Mm -hmm. That which is not to say there's not a lot of processing and reverb and effects going on yeah but we tried to keep it clean sounding yeah 
I, I, I love that, those, uh, the sounds of those. And what I like about them is they also don't sound like they're of a time period, <laughs> if that makes sense. Like, yeah. it's not, you stack that against another 80s album. They just don't sound like any. I think, I think. There's a little timeless quality. Think, well, yeah. I think that something that we shared was we didn't, we were talking about genre before and part of what made the live show so interesting and part of what made the recordings interesting was that they covered so much stylistic territory while still having a unity of it was always them. And so what we were doing was always in service of what does this song need, not what is this album going to sound like, not... Oh, really? I mean, ultimately, we wanted the album to work and we spent a lot of time sequencing and figuring out oh, what was going to, you yeah. know, what belongs on side one and what do we start with and mm-hmm. what do we end with yeah. and, and how does it become an organic thing. But in the context of actually recording, it was very much what does this song need to work. And then you worry about the and, later, the sequencing. Of, yes. Interesting. I think that's smart. Yeah. But it's weird because one of my favorite things about They Won't Giants is that you play someone, you can play someone 32 footsteps and seeing their reaction. But then sometimes one of the things that bothers me the most is that it's like the other person that I'm playing it to. I'm like, don't you hear what I hear? What you bring to it very much affects how you're going to react to it. So if somebody is a polka fan and you play them... (laughs) Hotel detective, they're, you know, <laughs> sure. what are they going to do? Or vice versa. So, you know, I've seen a lot of, you know, how should I introduce my friend to They Might Be Giants? Like, yeah. Well, well, what do they listen to? What do they like? Yeah. And, and get them in because understanding, you know, it can be overwhelming to just go, <laughs> why are they? They're all over. And I think that's probably less... I think that's probably less true now because they are more of a band now. They're more of a, they've got a kind of unifying sound and they've got the musicians who have their own styles that you know, help define them as a, as a band as opposed to when I was working with them when it was very much more all over the map. And I think that the children's records really are much more of the evolution of the early stuff in some yeah. ways than the band albums. Yeah. We talk about how they're kind of going maybe back to that sound a little bit with the last few albums. Mm, Yeah. So the way I've always seen it is like they got really serious about being like a rock band for a few albums. And but then they they made the children's music and they kind of were like, let's put all our or quirky, I know they don't like that word, quirky tendencies. I don't care. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Into the children's stuff. But then they kind of did less of the children's stuff and started incorporating that um, anything goes feel more into their adult albums. And that's when I started really loving their albums, hmm. like, again. Um, the last few albums have been, again, uh, yeah. probably all, all over the, the map, as you said, yeah. and maybe a return to that It feels spark. a little, yeah, like there's, like there's songs where it's like, oh, the backing man doesn't need to be on this song. This is a song hmm. that, that's happening more and more. That's great. That's where great. not every song that's is, great. is, you know. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Dave, do you have any, any things about any of the songs on the first albums? Or just well, like well, what do you think of Absolutely Bill's Mood? Yeah, yeah we should talk about Absolutely Bill's Mood. <laughs> well, it wasn't called that originally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Were you flattered or incensed? <laughs> I think both. Mostly flattered. And yeah. It seemed appropriate at the time. <laughs> yeah. uh, things weren't going so so well, <laughs> and it was hard. It was uh, 
hot and <laughs> and in the studio and yeah. Did they, and, and, was there an explosion? <laughs> no, I mean I think that was much more during Lincoln. Um, oh yeah, okay. more 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 tension during Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, he meant computer explosion. Oh, not personal. Oh, uh, oh, God. Was a oh take that out. Yeah. There was never any any friction at all. We, we can. Um, well, we know what the creative pro- recording yeah. process is. It's a well, it's actually that weird the creative process, but then being confronted with like we're on the clock process and those two can sometimes get really stressful stressful. it 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 was really yeah it was it was but it was the best kind of of stress and (laughs) and certainly until you know for a long time it was remarkably rancor free Mm. right it was stressful but the stress was always focused on the work mm-hmm. and what made it fun was that there was a recognition that there was always another idea and everybody had to be happy anybody had veto power to go this isn't working and mm-hmm. and if each of us had an idea that the either one of the others didn't like that idea had to get thrown away and we had to find something that that made everybody happy and that in itself was stressful but because it was all focused on making the song as good as it could be it never got personal and what makes because what makes bands fall apart and what makes people hate each other is your idea sucks and right. it's not which means you suck which means you suck <laughs> yeah. and and when you go there's always another idea you don't like my idea i still think it's great uh, but there's always another idea and that's what that's what allowed us to work and i'm sure it's what allows them to continue working together for for yeah. all this time well to get back to absolutely Billsman, did yeah. he like tell you i'm going to name it that or did it did you see it on the on a computer screen somewhere i think we were <laughs> i think I think we were at Dubway, and it was more like I'm Insane was just too on the nose. Oh, sure, sure. And so they didn't ask me, do you think it, it absolutely is absolutely <laughs> Bill's Mood a good idea? Mm-hmm. Um, but they said, why don't we call it that? And I wasn't going to argue. Did the stressful thing happen during the making of that song, or was it just that? There it, was just a lot of, there was just was a a lot lot of stress of going on. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I, I think they thought it was funny, and, <laughs> and I kind of agree. And it was flattering. Do you remember how you did that uh, the, the applause break in that song, where it's like <laughs> that's um, like an interesting dy- sound part of that song, you know? Yeah, I, we got it off a sound effects record, I think. Oh, really? And mm-hmm. basically, it's just punching in and out. Yeah, you yeah. can you can watch me miming pressing a button. Yes, on and off. He's, he's miming. Yeah, there's it's like a lot of the little decisions, like let's say like chess piece face. Like we talked about the delay in the voice. Mm-hmm. There's like a very prominent like it's like a full it's not a like it's not an echo it's like a full like one second like yeah you can really hear it like stuff like that where i my thing that i said i thought it made the song sound more lonely Mm -hmm. you know like did is that stuff that just kind of happened naturally or was it a lot a lot of it was just experimenting to go what's what's going to serve the mood and yeah i can't tell you i don't have a specific memory of it but i am 100 percent sure that we tried longer delays sure yeah. and shorter delays of course. and ended up with that yeah it's like this is the one that 
works and everybody think mm-hmm. makes, makes that song what it should be. Because yeah, because when it's, it's it doesn't happen when there's a thing that doesn't happen on any other song, mm-hmm. it always makes like perks my ears up. It's like oh, and even the way he sings that song, I've always thought was interesting because it's like a strange accent. Yeah, we can't quite put our finger on what he's doing. Yeah, I don't know if that was <laughs> or that, how if, he did it. If he tried different things for that, I don't know if you have any memory. There of were that. there were uh, any number of songs that he would do quietly and yeah. screamingly and yeah. like a rock star and like a crooner. I mean, he was willing to, to try what it would take. And, yeah. And it sort of goes back to what we were just saying, which is you try anything and is if he might think it was great and Linnell didn't like it or he didn't like it and we did. And, and a lot of it was how much do you care about any given decision? Because there's, there's, because in any song there are hundreds of decisions that go into making any single song, and sometimes you feel really, really strongly yeah. that this must be this way, and you'll and you'll fight for it. Yeah. And ultimately, if you get shot down, you get shot down, and you go lick your wounds and come up with another idea. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it's very much like, I think this is a good idea. And if everybody else agrees, you go, great, let's try it. And if they don't, then you go, ah, that's fine. I'll think of something else. Yeah, that's and why so, it's a marriage. <laughs> yeah. You pick, you're really picking your fights. Yeah, you pick, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. You pick your fights and, and each of us had things that we were more or less passionate about while mm-hmm. we were doing it. I'm just, before we Let's move jump, on, I'm just seeing, is jump, there any other little notes in. about any of these? Oh, we called, I, I, I didn't mm. even realize that For Science was called Girl From Venus. I was just looking at that. The, 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 <laughs> name, the name got you. I, I, that is actually one of my favorite songs. I oh, let's talk about it. Let's talk. Oh, it's just that, I just feel like <laughs> it is the world's shortest rock opera. Yeah. It's all there. And it's got everything Beginning, in it. Beginning, middle, It end. has everything <laughs> in it. I, I just think that was, it's like Linnell's just that's Tommy, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's like a three-record set in oh, in a minute and a half. That reminds me. Do you know who wrote it? Because they both sing it, so it's always a mystery when that happens. I think they both did. Honestly. Oh, interesting. But I but I could be wrong. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff that. I mean, there are things that were clearly this is one or the other, mm-hmm. but but there were any number where one of them would come in with an early version and then it would just get banged on until it was really hard to say that it was any one person's mm-hmm. For Science is one of our favorite songs too. The, in our miscellaneous tea episode, it, we were both uh, pleasantly surprised that the other loved it so much. <laughs> yep. I think it gets, I think well, it seems, I don't know. I think, yeah, the people skip past it. I think without. Oh no! Really? <laughs> what, so but what do I know? Am I not? I'm not talking to a lot of they might no, be. Yeah, I, I think fans, I but. think fans love it. It's it's almost it's an odd one because they've not really acknowledged that it exists for a very long time. Mm-hmm. They never <laughs> play it live. I think it'd be. With the stuff they do with the puppets and stuff live, they can I'd like do to that. see them do it like with the London Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, yeah that'd be great too. Do you remember anything about Boat of Car? Because that's like a fascinating <laughs> one. <laughs> I'm just being. I'm just indulging right now. That was Margaret, um, who was going out with Flansburg at the time, or they had broken up at that point. I don't. The timing is, is mm-hmm. hard. They went out, and again, it was always about what would serve it. So, mm-hmm. having somebody else, like the Eugene Chadbourne guitar, kind of the same oh, thing. Oh yeah. To go, well, what can what can we do that 
is going to make this song not going to make anybody look good. It's going to make the song more interesting. And mm-hmm. and I think that was Boat of Car and and you know having Kenny Nolan play on on Lie Still and oh yes. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, so all all those things were sort of embodying what we were talking about earlier. Where we don't really we didn't really care about who did what so much as mm-hmm. what we were going to end up with. There's someone else credited with vocals on Hotel Detective. I should oh, have yeah. written this down. Really? I, um, yeah, and I, we, we tried to find who this person was, but we, we came up with nothing. So it was a su- surprise to me because I didn't know that. And I also don't hear any other vocals. Yeah, it sounds like Linnell or someone doing backup. Maybe it's on the single mix. Backup vocal, Peter Piermain Thompson. Oh, Peter Thompson. Okay, so can you tell us about that? Peter Thompson, I had for, <laughs> frankly forgotten that. Mm-hmm. But I guess he was in town. Peter Thompson is, he's the uh, environment reporter for the world on NPR. Uh, okay. <laughs> Interesting. He was, uh, he was uh, another friend from Lincoln, Sud- went to Lincoln Sudbury. Okay. Was friends with Linnell and, and Flansburg and Dan Spock. Mm-hmm. Went to Antioch. Uh, actually played one time with the Functionaires. Played, oh. played percussion oh my God. with us. Um, and he's now an NPR you know, he's like a really good reporter. He's uh, he, he you know the, the world, right? It's a, it's a syndicated uh, syndicated news show on NPR. Okay, and it's been on for years. And he is there. Uh, he does all their environmental reporting. Wow. So, do you remember what the why he was it just for fun? Just yeah, <laughs> I'm sure he was. He was probably just in town and came to hang out while we were recording. Uh-huh. I, really quick though, the, the the single mixes for Hotel Detective and Don't Let's Start was that just like. They said something like you did that on your own while they were do- working on the music video or something like that. Do you remember? Do you Don't let's start. I that? went to mix. I did the single mix up in Vermont at the studio where I had recorded this band that I was telling you about before, Pinhead. And it was just because I don't even know why. <laughs> yeah. It was basically just to get a better mix because it was unlike what Joshua did, which is to actually do a remix yeah. and do <laughs> and and bring something new to it. Mm-hmm. It was basically just a better mix. Mm. It was not. You know, it was, there was nothing really added. It was just, it was just a new mix. Was that whose idea was it? Was it the record? I think company? so. I think so. I think yeah. was, I think they wanted to, they wanted a better sound. Because the bass is a lot warmer in the yeah. single mix. It's a little more below everything. Yeah. Uh, it was a better. Stu- a it was a, it was a better studio, and and the guy who who did the engineering is this guy named uh, uh, Charles Eller. A really good musician and engineer. So it was. I, I always felt kind of weird about that because yeah. I felt like people expect something from a remix that is going to bring something new to it. Yeah, and this sure. wasn't really about that. It was really it was just subtle. It was really just to sound better. Yeah, really. yeah. <laughs> and I think it does. Do you have like personal favorites on the first album that maybe? You know, you like for your own either yeah, production like reasons a, a, or. I'm sort of a, a big fan of the. Of the weird stuff. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, 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 but I. Because ah, well, there's nothing like I mean, it. If I go through, if I go through it and I go, what are my favorite songs on this album? So Thirty-two weird. footsteps, mm-hmm. I love. Mm-hmm. Toddler highway, I love. Rabid child, I love. Nothing's gonna change my clothes. I love. Boat of car, chess piece face. 
Hope that I get old. So, you know, <laughs> the day, I love the day. I think Flansburg, like, I think that's brilliant. Yeah, that's what I said. Dave, wait, Dave, <laughs> <laughs> he didn't think so. But uh, I said that it's was so, a highlight. It's so for naked. Me. And, I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, so, I said it was. I mean, I, and and I like. Right. I like everything on it, and so sure, it's yeah. really a question of degree. Is there anything that sticks out to you from that you're particularly proud of from what you did with it? I really like hope that I get old. I really, yeah. I really, am very happy with the silences. <laughs> yeah. And the sure. you know the sort of oddness of the rhythm and the mm-hmm. and the juxtaposition of explosions and <laughs> silence mm-hmm. and because if you just if you just had the song if you just had the yeah. verse in the chorus it would be a good song yeah but as a recording it's really different yeah yeah and i really and so yes that's something that i really that's a good I, I'm, I'm proud of <laughs> yeah and I think I think I had a lot to do with that. I will yeah. say. I mean, I had a lot to do with <laughs> mm. with all of it. But I think in terms of of pushing the boundaries on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you you said the thing about the day. Was there ever any talk about adding more to it, or you thought you think it was always there was always talk. Mm. Yeah, but I think it it was pretty clear early on that mm. that didn't need anything. That one always felt uh, sincere to me, but in a really cryptic way. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. And I guess let, let maybe um, Rhythm Section 1 ad just before we move on from the first album, because there's this early demo of Rhythm Section 1 ad that's pretty interesting. Me and Dave were just listening to it the, the other day. Like, it's very it's very sparse and, like, it has a totally different bridge. Mm-hmm. It's just like the, uh, kind of was like, do, 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 do. Too, oh too, yeah, too, too, yeah, and all these yeah, yeah. Little computer noises and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I, I really feel like the album version really is like it's a full-on rock song. Yeah. In a way that the other one, the other one might be more funny because of the t- subject matter. I think, and I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about some of the songs needed to embody a genre, mm-hmm. and a song about a rhythm section needed to be a rock song. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. The song tells you what it wants sometimes. Yeah. And here, here's a little detail. The song, you know, the, the backing vocals going like, no, no, mm-hmm. no. I don't know. It's like the way that those decisions happen is like very fascinating to me. It's the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. Mm-hmm. It's as much about the rhythm and where it fits in the mix as it is about what the words are in, in that case in particular i think okay, let, okay let's talk so let's about, move on to lincoln yeah let's talk about lincoln because this is like i i think it's i mean i love the first album but lincoln to me is like a very special album mm-hmm. i feel like it 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 does what the first album does but maybe like i feel like the songwriting is is quality is up there like you know thing and we talked about it we knew our way around the studio more yeah yeah as i said though a lot of those songs could have gone on the first album because they were already in the show they were already Mm -hmm. in the in the trunk well we should we should talk about anna ing because like we devoted a whole episode to anna ing which was like a very particularly obsessive episode if i say so myself um i watched hours of world's fair uh, documentaries i went to that world tour oh really oh i did Tell Please. us about that. Anything you I, mean, I was a kid, so, yeah. but I, I do remember the uh, Small World exhibit. Yeah. Oh, wow. You remember yeah. Animatronic Lincoln? I, yeah. I don't. I don't Probably remember Animatronic Lincoln. I remember, the, <laughs> I remember the Traveler's Insurance exhibit, which I think had a big uh, like like a digital, digital sign of, of the world population uh, growing. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, but, you know, these are... 
things like a five-year-old would just <laughs> Yeah, no, that's, well, that's really interesting. I mean, it has like a, this mythic quality after being a fan of Anna Ng for so long. We, we should talk about that, like the making of that. It has so many interesting production elements to it, like the harpsichord mm-hmm. or auto harp. Auto right? harp. Auto yeah. harp. I always do that. <laughs> auto harp. Like, do you remember how that happened? Like, was that, was it just there? <laughs> or was, you know, because that's like so, and the whole album has a lot of auto harp. I think there was one at Dubway. Yeah, and it just it just felt right for yeah, these songs it, for whatever reason. Yeah. yeah. Was there like any different discussion going into the second album um, compared to the first? Like, was there a different approach? Even though these songs were all together, I mean, I imagine there must have been something like, well, now we're going to do this even more so, or... Or was it just I think do it, was, it again? I think it was. It wasn't so much do it again as as every time we went in, we had more. We were more comfortable, and we had a better idea of what we could do, and we also had a little more time, and the equipment was a bit better, and so it was incremental. It was it was evolutionary, not revolutionary, really. I, th- I think it really just came with the confidence of having done it before. Mm-hmm. And also we were doing more shows and we were actually touring. A lot of it was just had more time to hone it. Well, you already told us there's no fuck you asshole in Cowtown. Yeah. I mean, that I'm was pretty really sure, our... I'm pretty sure about that. That was our magic bullet question. Yeah. But those noise, those vocal noises are interesting, though. Like, mm-hmm. uh, do you remember how those were created? Because they sound manipulated in some way, or something. I think it's something Flansburg did at home and brought in. Oh, really? Okay. I think so. Well, then you don't know if there's "fuck you" yeah. asshole. Well, <laughs> I did. I did in. mix it. So yeah, yeah. Anything that sticks out in your mind of production things, production things that shape the songs a certain way, or. Um, or even, I, I find it interesting just know like favorites or uh, you know general opinions like that. I love Life Still. Yeah. I was really happy to to make that sound warm and yeah. and live and organic and and not be the drum machine worked and we needed it mm-hmm. for almost everything, but that was just going to be too sterile. Even his vocal on that song, there's not a lot of like compression. Like no. it, it goes, the volume level kind of dips in. It's very mm-hmm. natural sounding, like he's being recorded without consent <laughs> or something like that. Like, like it's not, it's not up front. It's not, mm-hmm. it doesn't have that immediate feel. So it does have that line. Yeah, it, it. I think it was, we really wanted it to feel intimate. Mm-hmm. So why still, Where Your Eyes Don't Go, I think is like a perfect Linnell song. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's, it's like the template for a million songs. <laughs> if he had, if if he he could just write that song over and over again, sure. Right. Yeah, I think that might be my favorite on Lincoln. It's it's, it's really definitely interesting. a top three. Yeah, another great song. <laughs> Let's I mean, talk about how great they for are. me. Where your eyes don't go, piece of dirt, or Mister Me might be my favorite yeah. section uh, on like any album. Maybe. Do you know? I don't know if you've heard this, and this is kind of a tangent, but sure. um, there's a clip of Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett singing "Shoehorn with Teeth." Oh, interesting. Really? Yeah, at some event, it was like some sci-fi <laughs> event yeah. or something. Oh my god! I, and that I came across by pure accident. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my, oh my god! They they march out on stage singing "Shoehorn with Teeth," so it was pretty pretty funny. And I remember the song that we sang as we walked down the street. Uh, um, it didn't have a, a shoehorn with teeth. <laughs> it was shoehorn. 
the kind with teeth. People should be locked up for stating their belief. He wants a shoe or the kind with teeth. Because he knows there's no such thing. And that's well, that wow. makes sense that they had the Sandman reference. Yeah, because he, he, Neil Gaiman just must be in. Neil, he yeah, he's a, he's a, yeah, he's a, he's a, yeah, he's a, he's a He references awesome. Nightgown of the Sullen. Yeah. I, I don't go up to people and say hello when I see celebrities or I meet people because I never know what to say. I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I appreciate their work and I'm really glad that they did it, but I'm not, I don't go approach people and I'm not a, I don't write fan letters, but when I saw the clip of, of Neil Gaiman doing Shimon yeah. Teeth, I wrote, I found his email, I wrote him an email, an email just to say how happy I was that right. he enjoyed it because he had brought me, because I love his books, I, mm-hmm. I read his, his books and, and that, that I was just grateful that he, you know, liked, yeah. liked it and, um, and he wrote back about, it was like nine months later or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, we can talk a little about sequencing. So mm-hmm. some of these songs, you know, so the songs were left off the first album. Do you remember anything about the sequencing of, of this album? I think it was really clear that Anna Ng was going to lead the record sure. off. <laughs> there was probably, like, no ego. It was really about, like, this is a single. We, we really want this to... Yeah, kind of and thing. it just starts really... It's a really strong song, and it's really catchy, and mm-hmm. this, this, this works. And, and, and I think ending with Kiss Me, Son of God also was a really yeah. just natural choice. It just really sort of brings everything to a nice... And that has a warm nice sound, close. too. Yeah. That recording's great. Yeah. Do you know The Ordinaires? Do you know... Do you know uh, we, I looked them up when we did our episode. Because I, I produced their second album. And I did their live sound for a long time. Oh, wow. Um, they were, I mean, it's its pretty much the strings uh, on Kiss Me, Sound of God, but they were mm-hmm. like a 10-piece yeah. instrumental band with two guitars and bass and drums and two horns and two violins and a cello. Mm-hmm. And club owners really liked to put they might be giants and the ordinaries on the same bill mm-hmm. because the changeover was really much easier. That's fine. <laughs> than, because they had so much stuff yeah. and we and we had so little. <laughs> um, and they were they were great. But that one even also has that kind of vocal quality of the vocals. Where right? we were, we tr- I tried to, I was kind of failing at explaining this in our episode about it. Like there's almost like a like a vinyl kind of like a flat quality to the vocals. It makes it sound like an older record. Whereas a song like Anna Ng, the vocals have um, more bass to them and they're right up front. I don't know if this, these are things that, I assume these are things that were like kind of figured out at the time or obsessed over. It gets back again to what the song needed mm-hmm. and that it's about genre and, and form mm-hmm. and that, you know, the world's address needed to be kind of strident yeah it needs to be in your face Mm -hmm. and kiss me son of god is much more it's a much more personal kind of one-to-one communication so i i think i think all those decisions were not about making them sound a specific way as as you describe it but as how does it serve the the emotional Mm -hmm. direction well, I, I'm just wondering if we can explore the sequencing thing 
a little bit more. How much how much discussion is had about that? There was a there was a lot of discussion and I think it got hammered on a lot and there'd be a lot of sort of sample what it you know mm. we just listened to the right. songs in a bunch of different sequences to go how does both how do they flow song to song and how does it feel as an arc mm-hmm. from beginning to end and you know, I could easily imagine coming up with a half a dozen different sequences that mm. might work just as well, but this was the one that, we, you know, what happens is it's like anything, you know, like everything is in the last place you look, yeah. like you do it until yeah. it feels right, and then mm. you don't need to do it anymore because you find one that works. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that that is really what, what it's about because you start, we go, okay, what's going to be, and again, this was now still vinyl so you had to think mm. in terms of side 1 mm-hmm. and side 2 yep. so what's going to what's going to start side 1 strong what's going to end the side 2 strong what's going what is a good intermediate start for side 2 so the, i mean those are the kinds of things i can't give you the specific decision making that we went through to do it do you think that's something that's lost a little bit now with everything being pretty much a single? Yeah, I do. I, I think I know that, that's something I miss a lot with yeah. the journey that the album will take you on. I, th- I think so. I think that you know, there's pluses and minuses to the what the tech gives us. That sense of what an album is. It's funny because artistic decisions flow from technical limitations. So when there were 78s and you could have basically three and a half minutes on a side that's what you had to work with and you had to make it work <laughs> mm. that way. When when record changers came in and you could have multi-record sets and, you know, the thing would play and then the next the next one would play, you could think in longer term. But the the LP as a kind of 40-minute, 38- to 42-minute thing ended up being a natural form, like the two-hour movie in a way, because movies could have been... Yeah, 25 minutes, you know, original two reelers were 20 minutes or whatever. And two hours was, you know, became sort of what people expected and mm-hmm. both expected and could stand. Yeah. Right. Because <laughs> pe- nobody would stand very, unless you're a real movie lover, people generally don't like to sit through five hour <laughs> movies. <laughs> I do, but, you know, I'm in the minority. Hitchcock called it the bladder factor. Yeah, that's that's part of it. Although movies are weird because, you know, if you watch old movies where people go to the movies. Yeah. People used to walk in in the middle of the movie. Yeah, that drives me crazy. And, and they would sit there, they'd walk in in the middle of the movie and they would watch it through the end and then the beginning back to where they came in. It's like, oh, this is where we came in and, and they would leave. Yeah. <laughs> Seems mm-hmm. like an insane way to watch a movie. Like only a crazy person watches a movie though. <laughs> I think they were they were less <laughs> precious about it, but but I agree. I think that that sequencing is it's not a major loss, but it is a real loss. Yeah, I mean, there's some new albums where it does feel like it's it's like an afterthought, you know. But I and yeah. the other thing is, I think just the switch from LPs to CDs, right? Yeah. Uh, like from going from 40 minutes to basically an hour, and a lot of bands, I think struggled to fill an hour sure, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot easier to pick 40 good minutes and not have an extra 20 minutes of filler and i think 
you know, some people were really good at it, and there were some really great albums that came out on CD. I'm not saying it's mm-hmm. impossible to do, but I think limitations are always good. Yeah, limitations yeah. are what make you, force you to, to be creative. Mm-hmm. And forcing you to do it in 40 minutes is better than giving you an hour or five hours mm-hmm. or whatever. <laughs> that it makes you think about it. You have to push up against those limits. That's what, what makes you good. Hmm. Anything else about the Lincoln songs? Or do you want to? I love all of these songs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I love now. Santa's beard. You know, I mean, a lot of people yeah. think that that's kind of a throwaway. I think, <laughs> and and uh, I love how it sounds. Actually, I always loved how Flansburg's uh, vocals sound on that song. Mm-hmm. They're really like punk sounding. Mm-hmm. They're really cool. And yeah, um, I've got a match. I've got a it's match. Like a fan favorite. That's a terrific song. And that also is a song that's like very funny and very. You'll sad. miss me. Yeah. <laughs> I might need to listen to it. It's a crazy arrangement. Oh, that sounds really good. <laughs> when was the last time you heard this? A while. Yeah. <laughs> I like what we do with the vocal. Your distortion? Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Basically, you sort of make it sound like it's coming through a telephone. Mr. Me is a big standout for me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have any memories of, of putting that one together, but that's like a pretty crazy arrangement. And, you know, that's there's a lot going on in that song. If you want, to. Yeah, yeah. Could be. One of my wife's favorite songs <laughs> as a casual fan. I feel like you can't be in a bad mood listening to that song. I think that's what I said. <laughs> yeah. Although. It's just so goddamn fun. <laughs> the whistling is the uh, Fairlight, I think. It's definitely not in somebody whistling. Hmm. <laughs> oh, the tremolo on the guitar. Yeah. That's what I like, the tremolo on the guitar. Mm-hmm. That's that's fabulous. I had it's it's funny. I had a job before right before I left New York, I had a job at, um engineering karaoke records. Mm-hmm. And it was like going to grad school as an audio engineer because mm. I never knew when I walked in what I was going to be working on. There'd just be like a cue sheet of sure. this is what you're doing. And we would lay down the original track and we'd put the original down and the job was to make it sound absolutely identical to the original. So we they were working with like the best studio musicians in the city and arrangers. They, it was a Japanese company that wa- was basically going to introduce karaoke to the US. It was yeah. in the, in the uh, late 80s. And they had recorded all this stuff in Japan and they weren't happy with it. And so they came to New York, they bought a studio and started hiring these people. And an engineer I knew got me a job there. And on any given day, it might be doing like staying alive and figuring out are the background vocals doubled or tripled you know and uh and on this hank williams record the drums it's uh it's somebody playing brushes on a cardboard guitar case Mm -hmm. and the one that i was most happy with was um nancy sinatra uh these boots are made for walking yeah you know the bass the descending quarter uh Mm -hmm. quarter tone bass thing that is uh an acoustic bass hard one side and electric bass 
hard the other side doubled. Huh. But if oh. you don't listen to it, yeah. it's just like it's just yeah, this yeah, iconic yeah. bass sound, but it's really, really specific how they did it. And so now we're putting this on, I'm going, well, how did they do that? And I'm, yeah. it's, <laughs> I'm, it's this, how did they do it? No, how did yeah, we yeah. do it? You want to skip ahead to uh Yeah, I don't know if there's any miscellaneous tea songs that you had any thoughts about. Um, I think, I don't know if you were involved in some of them. Some of them I was some not. Some of them it said they yeah. made it. Yeah, some of them were definitely after after I left. But uh, yeah, any anything about any of these? There are songs on there that I really wish that I had done. Yeah, <laughs> and well, because they were in the show, and so I was really familiar uh, yeah. with them because because they had been playing them live for quite a while, mm-hmm. and so I had I had produced and mixed the show versions of the songs. But then they went oh, okay. and they went and you know did redid them for. Oh. For recording purposes, so I, I listen to some of them. Go, that's exactly the way I would have done it with them, or that's exactly not the way I would have done it with them because I, I was like, you know, where the replacements had been in the show for a year or more before. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that song too. <laughs> I love the rubber. Mm-hmm. Did, and that did that one come out relatively? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was pretty close. I mean, that's hard to that that, that song sort of plays itself in a uh-huh. way. What was um, one that you were just like surprised that it was? It's not my birthday. Came out pretty close. Hmm. We have the early. I played a clip of the the live version of that. Is a little. It is different. Mm. It's like the drums are harsher. It's yeah. More like the kind of like marching drums and you know harder hitting snare and all that stuff. Yeah, Nightgown of the Sullen Moon had been in the show for a little while. Wow. So I, that was. I didn't um, know they ever played that live. I think so. Wow. Unless I'm just making it up, which is quite possible. <laughs> but if you are, let's believe it, because that's one of our favorite That's songs. one of my favorite songs, and they've never played it. I love, I love Mr. Claw. That is one of my favorite mm-hmm, songs of too. all time. Yeah. <laughs> I Promise Not to Kill You. It's just like, I just love that song. Oh, that's Spider. That's uh, Spider, right. Yeah. Oh, Mr. Claw. Oh, the, the, yeah, Spider, Spider I also... <laughs> you can tell what I gravitate to. Sure. Right? Oh, I mean, yeah. can, I, mean I, I love that. I love the poppy, you know, rock, yeah, hook laden songs. But the ones that are the dearest to my heart are yeah. the, are these ones that don't fit into those those right. standard slots because of what we were talking about earlier. I yeah, like yeah. stuff that is either outside of genre or transcends it in some way or that takes mm-hmm. takes elements of a genre and uses it in a way that you wouldn't expect. And I. Mr. You know, that, certainly does I, and, and I and I think uh, I'm really, you know, for a while at least they when they went to the live band versus the tape they lost some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and because you know if you're touring with a horn player and you got to use the horn player, then you use the horn player. Yeah, and yeah. Nothing, there's nothing wrong with it, but it it makes it less. You have less range to do the weirdest mm-hmm. thing. Do you remember, were you involved in recording Mr. Claw? Yeah, I think so. Because it's Linnell is playing guitar. There's the crazy vocals happening. Like, if there's, do you yeah, recall think, the making of that at all? Linnell, I think I said this in email, he would just pick up an instrument and play it. And yeah. He is a strong... Uh, evidence for just the idea of talent. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, oh, must be nice. What? One <laughs> of my. Uh, it's, it's awesome to watch. <laughs> yeah. Experience. It really is. One of my favorites is the biggest one. Nice reverb. Nice reverb. Yeah. On his on his vocal. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy with that. 
That's great. <laughs> Whoever did that was a fucking genius. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Um, yeah, uh, there's also, we know you you helped play Hi-Hat on When It Rains, It Snows. I don't know, that's something fans do know about because they did mention that. Yeah, no, I just it just needed it, so I ran out and did it. Like I said, I, I did play in a band. I was, although at that point I was, I guess I was still playing guitar. I switched to saxophone at one point. I bought a ten, oh. it's like I played tenor and really loved that. One thing that we're in the middle of now is the bonus tracks on then the earlier years, which is why I had first emailed you. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you were even involved in, in, in all of these or some of these. Name them, because I don't remember. Okay. <laughs> um, there's Now That I Have Everything, so you know. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I, I love that one. That's like a favorite. Of yeah, me. that had been that was that was an old song. That had been around for a long time. Yeah, "Fake Out in Buenos Aires" is another one that's kind also of also had been around for a long time. Yeah, I'm doing that at Dorinka. So that oh really? Yeah, wow, I'm pretty, cool. I'm pretty sure that had been around for interesting for, for several years. Mm-hmm. There's like "Weep Day." Yes, <laughs> I love that song. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't. I can't really give you any details. It's about very it. surprising to me that it's not. It never was on an album because it's just you know the stuff cut off albums sometimes. It's shocking to me for all bands I like. It's, yeah, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, I I think it has a lot of it has to do with when you're so prolific, you get to mm-hmm. really be very picky about what you put out. And yeah. Uh, Big Big Hordum is interesting. Yeah, <laughs> that also had been around for a long time. That was an old older song. Do you have any? Would you have any insight into why? So Nightgown of the Sullen Moon mentions Big Big Hordum in the lyrics. I know you say you're not a lyrics guy so much, but that's like one. That's, that's something that we really failed to figure no, out. I feel. <laughs> like, well, you say failed. I I I can't say. I can yeah. I can say that. Being self-referential is something that <laughs> a little bit goes a long way, and I think that they're good at it. And so, as with Rhythm Section One, Ed, you know, there's, or the They Might Be Giants theme song, yeah. you know, <laughs> it becomes, there's a certain amount of, of sort of under-the-hood world-building yeah, yeah, yeah. for the people who care, and I think for the people who do, who don't, it doesn't matter and doesn't right. make doesn't make it any less interesting. It just is another obscure reference, and that if you get it, you go, oh, look, that's a great little thing. Well, builds up a mythology a little bit. We, yeah, we've yeah. talked about that. Because in that case, it's like Nightgown of Solomon Moon is released, but Big Recorder at that time was not released, so most people do not know it's even a reference to anything, which we didn't for years. Right. Until, so, you know, so that's like, like, right. But again, and again, yeah. you know, does it, to people who are not fans, does the fact that nobody's ever heard of Doc Sugar Bowl matter yeah. other uh-huh. than other than it's a place? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So, <laughs> so... And we then this gets back to sort of how much most people spend more time caring about lyrics than I do. I'm mm. I am the last person you should ask about lyrics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because sure. I will I will enjoy them, mm-hmm. uh, but accept them for what they are, and I rarely rarely want to go deeper. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I do, but mostly I just want to let it be what it is. Yeah. And. I usually don't want to find out anything about the artist whose work I like because you sure. because everyone has feet of clay and if you find <laughs> out you know you find out that Picasso beat his women and you know that everybody's an asshole of, yeah, of some yeah. kind or another <laughs> and there are people who knowing about their lives enhances their work but more often it diminishes it. I wanted to ask <laughs> about one thing. Um, so there's this little clip on then the early years of. Uh, it's called Doris Cunningham. A lot of it had to do with 
just making the show more interesting mm. as did a bunch of show intros that yeah. <laughs> we would just play before they came out. Mm-hmm. And because there was stuff on tape, it was, you know, partially it was just something that was amusing. Some of it was a parody of having somebody introduced, like an actual MC introduce the band. Mm. I think that a lot of it was about that. It was mm-hmm. about having the show be more than just coming out and playing songs. Yeah. Oh, Hell Hotel we didn't talk about at all. I think that they've been doing it for a really long time before I knew that it was based on a Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah. Oh, so before we move away from re- songs that were recorded, uh-huh. anything about the, the songs that did show up on Flood that you were like, involved in in those early shows... Sapphire Bullets. I love um, that. I love that song. That's one that had been around for a really long time. That really? we did that at Dorinka. So, you know, 1985, 80, probably. Was the arrangement similar to what ended up on Flood? Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, it was. Very it was slicker. Yeah. I mean, because hmm. <laughs> they had a real studio to do it in. Yeah. Um, but but the song was essentially the same. Mm-hmm. And one of my personal favorites is Stormy Pinkness. Yeah, that had been around for for a long time. I mean that. That could have been, you know, the day, right? That's, yeah, I mean, it, that's so interesting. So, in some cases, it's there was just a whole long list of songs to record, and what we got to, and what they felt like doing on any given day, sort of determined what ended up there. But could have been any of these other old songs that mm-hmm. people liked, and they performed a lot. We were curious, just as fans, what you think of the, like, st- any opinions on the stuff that they made after working with you, like throughout the 90s and or even recent? Like, because we did mention a few songs already. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think they've done great stuff all the way through. And I, I think I've been pretty clear that the stuff that resonates for me is a lot of the stuff that doesn't necessarily lend itself to the rock band format. Yeah, yeah. So I like the stuff that they did in that format and that mm-hmm. they continue to do in that format, but I felt like they lost some of that uniqueness and some of the stuff mm-hmm. that made them really special. And I think some of that's come back, and I think some of it, once they started doing the, the kids' records, was yeah. an, an outlet for, for some of that stuff. So I personally felt like they should have just kept working with the tape forever. <laughs> yeah. Because it would have allowed them to do what we did, which was mm-hmm. just let the song tell them what it needed, not mm-hmm. vice versa. Yeah. But that's my, you know, that's just my taste. I have to admit they've made a lot of records, and I haven't heard every yeah, song yeah. on every record. <laughs> well, also mm-hmm. that they're going back to dial a song in the last few years, mm-hmm. I think lends itself to being more experimental. I, yeah, I agree. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of that stuff is amazing. And like There's I said, it, it harkens back, I think, to the 80s stuff a lot. And it's really great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think Dial Song was the, the greatest thing that ever happened to them. And, <laughs> yeah. And that it just let them be really free and, and not have to worry about yeah. what, what was going to be full-blown, what was going to be... Uh, a pop hit, what was going to be in the live show. It was just an outlet for all this amazing creativity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's definitely a crucial part of the puzzle. You can say as much as you want, but what, like when Flood, (laughs) (laughs) the Flood coming out and all that, like where were you at that time? I was a full member, right? I didn't play, but I was 
produced and but I wasn't but I wasn't playing and I didn't write mm-hmm. material. I was strictly production and engineering. And it was time. That's just, mm. that's just what I'll mm. say. It, yeah, sure. it was time. It was five. It was five years of being really, really intense. And I was happy to get out of New York. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's a part big... of it. And I really didn't want to tour anymore. Although I oh, did, really? a, I did a couple of tours with uh, the Ordinaires after uh, I left New York. I feel like a, a tour is something that looks fun from the outside. It's really cool for about the first three days of the first tour <laughs> yeah. you ever do. Mm-hmm. And then it's just kind of a low-grade headache for 23 hours a day yeah. and an hour of the show, which is fun. I mean, I suppose that if you're Led Zeppelin and you're it's drugs and sex and rock and roll, then and you're you know jumping and driving cars in the swimming pools. Maybe that's a different kind of tour. They might be giants. Was never that coffee kind of, and that kind of, books and yeah. There were no. It, there, it wasn't a groupie scene. You know, yeah. it was uh, the fans were not your typical rock fans. They were great, but yeah. Um, and there were some very interesting parties. I have to say, at some of the venues, mm-hmm. but. Um, and the early tours when we were sleeping on people's couches. Yeah. I mean, there were there were times when we would be at a show and not know where we were staying right. that night. Where, like, from the <laughs> stage, we, like, who's, does anybody have a place, place where crash. we can yeah. stay? And Crazy. usually it worked out. And once in a while, but once in a while it was... We're driving way out into the woods. <laughs> we don't know if these people are going to kill us. But more, and nobody ever did, and nobody was ever you know, threatening in any <laughs> way. Ever killed but him. more often, it would be that it was somebody who was a really big fan and wanted to stay up all night and either party right. yeah, or yeah. talk. And after driving all day and doing a show, sure. all we wanted to do was go to sleep. And <laughs> yeah. But the deal was, you know, somebody's inviting you into their home. It's very yeah, nice of them. Yeah. You know? Well, I read a recent thing that Linnell is not the biggest fan of touring, but Flansburg is acclimated to it. Mm-hmm. Um, Linnell is saying that he finds it very hard to sleep on the tour bus, and um, so I'm sure that factors in. Yeah. It's not. It's 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 a hard life, and it's hard on relationships. People, you know, it's hard if you've. Yeah. Well, and you have to do it more than ever now because the. Because you're not making any money recording, yeah. So it's. Yeah, you have to. It's six days a week or whatever it is. Yeah, they've been pretty. They've been trying to be like pretty innovative about how to make money. <laughs> like they do interesting well, things. The fan club, the fan and, club yeah. and all these other things that they do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's. I think they've turned down a lot of stuff as well, though. They get offered a lot of weird stuff. Oh really? Yeah. Hmm. So did. Uh, when Flood came out, did you listen to it? I assume? Yeah. Or were you like? Yeah, and it must be. It must have been a little strange to to hear it, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, my reaction was mixed because I yeah. loved it. I think, and there were a lot of songs that I had been living with yeah. for years, and some of them, I said, yes, that's the way I would have done it with them, mm-hmm. and some of them I went. Not the way I would have done it. Interesting, yeah. Um, Electra wanted to turn them into a successful band, mm-hmm. and they they got uh, was it Clive Langer and Alan and Stanley yeah. did yeah. Flood, and they were successful and they're good. You know, they have no, you know, they're really successful people. They had their own agenda, mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah, they did talk about. Birdhouse, like really consciously making it a the big hit single, yeah. more, more than they had ever done before. Yeah. 
in the studio, right? Yeah, like, very much so. Like reworking it and restructuring it and like what's going to grab, you know, it's interesting to me. Apollo 18 also, like it still feels like the same spirit to me, right? Like mm-hmm. like you're talking about Spider and other stuff, you know? Um, is there anything that stands out to you as just like a listener on, on any, on those albums? Like, <laughs> like I... I <laughs> I don't think my opinion matters oh. on those things, honestly. I, if I, yours doesn't, well, we're screwed. <laughs> well, no, that, I think that that's. I think your opinion matters more than mine uh, on yeah. those because you're <laughs> you're approaching them in a different way, and I sure, yeah, I yeah. was. I look at it as this is something that I worked on and was involved with. And once I stopped working on them, mm-hmm. my opinion became as important as any other fan. Yeah. Except insofar as you care enough to do all this research and think <laughs> about it and talk about it in a way that I, that I never did. So yeah, we're approaching it from completely different angles. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, my opinion about the stuff I worked on, has validity because I was there. Yeah, the stuff yeah. that I that I didn't work on, I'm just another schmo. <laughs> okay. Even more than usual. <laughs> you know, I, I did mention you, you were interviewed for Gigantic. I don't know if you had any, like, that was an interesting experience for you. I was too, actually, as a fan, but it, they cut me out. <laughs> it was interesting. I wasn't. It, it was interesting insofar as I think I've been there for like 30 seconds. Oh, really? I, I mean, I'm not in, it, it's not, um, and they interviewed me for more than an hour. It went on for yeah. a while. Yeah. And uh, so there was very little. There was very little that actually made it into the into the movie. It was exciting for fans though, because to see, put a face to the. Like, I'll have to, I'll have to, to honestly. I'll have to watch it again because mm. because I I've seen it a couple of times and I just remember thinking. I had all this cool stuff to say. Yeah. I didn't use any of it. <laughs> right. There's just, a lot that they cut that's out. Just, that's just my ego. And they, and they, you know, they had a lot of people to interview, and it's not like I have an ego. I will not deny that. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and I have to say that I think I had a bigger part in what was happening for the early yeah, stuff yeah. Than, the, than that that shows. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those, those were not my decisions. That was right. AJ, AJ Schneck. AJ and, and John and John had Schneck. a lot of input into it, I think. Well, it's a good documentary, and I think you just want more of everything. Yeah, so like for, like, it's just too much to... I went to a screening of it when it first came out, mm-hmm. and, or close to, I think they did a screening in L.A. John and John were there, and AJ was there, and they did like a and a after it was over. And I, I walked up to AJ to say, congratulations, it's, I'm really happy. And the first thing he said was, I'm really sorry we didn't put more of you in there, and, yeah. and it's going to go in the bonus tracks. Because while I was watching it, I was thinking... Okay, this is cool. You know, it's, this is yeah. this is good. But there's a lot of stuff in there that I had some insight on that they did talk about, yeah, that sure. they didn't use. But I figured there's, you know, you've got to leave everything out because it's a documentary and you've got 900 hours of footage and you got to yeah. and you got to cut it down. Are you still talking to the Johns? I don't see him very much. I mean, yeah. some, uh, when they come through LA, I don't always go see them. Some sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Uh, I am still really good friends with Jamie Kipman, who's their manager. Yeah. Who I introduced. I mean, I knew him before I knew them, so I'm still really good friends with him. And I actually saw him yesterday. Uh, oh wow! So he keeps me up on you know, <laughs> what's you know yeah. what's happening. And when I when I miss doing it, it's a really good thing for me to call him up and ask him how things are going. Okay. <laughs> and it reminds me why I left. Yeah. Because <laughs> I do 
there are definitely things that I miss about the music business, but mostly it was an incredible pain in the ass for the amount of joy that it brought me. Yeah. You know, I, I was in it for 10 years, mm-hmm. and there are people who do it their whole lives and love it, but a lot there's a lot of bullshit. There's a lot of... We cut slack to artists, mm-hmm. right? We let artists, creative people, be flaky. We grant them leeway that we don't grant regular people, quote unquote, sure, in yeah. our lives because we get something from them. They they bring us art. The artistic business, both music business and arts of, of all kind, attracts a lot of people who are flaky but are not particularly creative. Mm-hmm. And you find them in all aspects of the music business and other, so people who work at record companies and people who work at you know, clubs and people, you know, whatever it is, a lot of them are just, they're just a pain in the ass. Mm. And (laughs) those are the people you got to deal with. And it's like, they are just as flaky and fucked up as the artists, but they're not creative. They're not giving you anything anything in return. (laughs) And I didn't want to spend my life with those people. It's it's rare to find uh, uh, good people on the, you know, the other side of it, good club owners. There are, I mean, they exist. Some of them are great. Yeah. There are people that you really want to want to be with, but you know, um, I saw a club owner pull a gun on his own sound man, you know, (laughs) um, you know, you know, um, (laughs) You've seen Spinal Tap, right? Yeah. And he talks about this club, the uh, the Electric Banana. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not, well, the Electric Banana is a real club. Oh yeah. In Pittsburgh, and it was run by a guy named Johnny Banana. Johnny Banana. And we did like a Tuesday night, and hardly anybody showed up. The local promoter hadn't really done anything to promote the show, so it was not a great crowd. And when it was over, Johnny took it on himself to try to save us a few bucks to not pay the house sound man mm. the, I think, $50 that the house sound guy was due. And it was the house guy's equipment. I mean, it wasn't even Johnny's equipment. And and oh. when he sort of took exception to not getting his minimum, Johnny pulls out his gun. He's like, let's not have any problem here. And he, and he was just an asshole. And wow. he, he, he extorted T-shirts from us. You know, it was just... Who needs to deal with that crap? Johnny Banana. Johnny Banana. Real guy. Um, Real fun. You brought us some stuff. Do you want to like tell us? Yeah, I'm just going to tell you a couple we... of random stories. Yeah, that's and, awesome. And, and, let you, and, then, and then we'll go. So uh, our, our first tour of Europe, we fly to London, and... I found I found these notes that I wrote at the time of awesome. of what happened, which was we fly to London, we landed, we go through immigration, and then we get to customs. And we have when you travel with equipment, you've got to have these documents that show that you're going to not sell them in the country you bring them to. Otherwise, you have to pay duty on them, right? As if you're importing them. Mm-hmm. And so there was. There was confusion as to what documents we needed and what we had. And we basically were informed that the documents that we had brought, which I had carefully gone to, were good for the US but meant nothing to us in meant nothing in the UK. Mm-hmm. And so we spent seven hours in a in a room yeah. <laughs> while they were trying to figure out what they were gonna do. And they basically said that 
we can we could either pay the duty, which was going to be yeah. several thousand dollars, oh my God. Or, <laughs> or post this bond of transshipment, meaning that the equipment was in transit and wasn't going to be used in the UK, mm. right? So, which meant we wouldn't actually be able to do shows with it. Sure. <laughs> and so, the thing was, we would have to show these transshipment papers to the customs people as we left, and it was this whole, it was this whole long thing. Yeah. So we were seven hours. I can show you. I'll send you a picture of yeah. the ro- of the notes up on the wall of this room that we sat in for. Okay. Sure. And eventually, huh. eventually. Rough Trade, who was had put out the record in the UK, mm-hmm. put up the bond. They were going to cash the bond check and then give the money back when if we certified that we were taking the equipment out of the country that we had brought in. Mm-hmm. So it was this. This was our introduction to like welcome, <laughs> wow. welcome to the UK. Wow. So what year was this? 1987. 87. Okay. It was November of 87. Okay. So <laughs> glamorous so rock star. Life. That was the glamorous. <laughs> that was fabulous. <laughs> then, so that was wonderful, and, <laughs> and we got the carnet validated, and we'd worried about it. We thought it was going to be uh, a big problem. We took the the boat to Calais and, and drove to Paris, where we showed up for our sound check at 6 p.m. And this was after driving around Paris, like being lost for about an hour and asking people how to get there. Finally, we asked somebody how to get to this club and he just laughed at us. And I thought, this is some Parisian laughing at an American. But the reason he was laughing is that we were actually in front of the club that we were trying to get to and Mm. didn't realize it's right. You're right in front of it. And so it was 6 p.m., and they told us that we had missed soundcheck at 1 p.m. and that the show had been canceled. Oh, oh. God. <laughs> and so... This is such an anxiety more phone, <laughs> Yeah, it is. More phone calls, and the people at the club said that they had gotten there at the club at 1 p.m. for a soundcheck and that we needed to do this soundcheck at 1 p.m. because the club was right next to the Folies Bergère, which is this, you know, strip club, like, club famous and that the sound check would interfere with the show next door because of the sound but we had no idea about this nobody had said anything and the show the show that we weren't supposed to interrupt was called debbie sans femme 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 at the i'm sorry it was not the folies bergere it was at the moulin rouge oh yeah yeah. yeah. which was in the same building yeah yeah. right Mm -hmm. it was in the same building my wife went there and so we said, you know, we'll we'll just do the sound check right before the show. We don't, and right. like, no, 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 you can't. Um, that they had, they had telexed the agent three days earlier and tried to call the day before. And we said we'd do the show anyway, even without if we would just do uh, get a house sound mixer. And they said, nope, they couldn't get a house sound mixer. And we were we were freaking out because mm. this was our show in Paris mm-hmm. and. We were talking to the manager. It was about 10 p.m., and he said, "Well, when's your when's your next show? Maybe we can reschedule you." And we said, "Well, we're off tomorrow." And they said, "Well, we'll do the show tomorrow." <laughs> and so wow. we, yeah. we rescheduled it, and we did the show the next day, and it all was fabulous. <laughs> what a journey! That's great. <laughs> that. So that was that. <laughs> this is this was our tour book. Oh, cool! Oh, awesome. oh wow! So the, can I see them? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I can show you some pictures. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! 
This is cool. That's in Berlin. Just driving through East Germany, which we had wow. to do because it was about this was about a year before the wall came down, yeah. right? So we we had to drive through East Germany, and we were in Berlin, uh, you know, which is West Berlin. Do you think that was inspiration for a road movie to Berlin? I, I'm sure it was part of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How were those shows? Was there a big uh, crowd? Was there? It it really varied. It really depended yeah. on the local promoter and whether they did actually promote, yeah, yeah. as opposed to just sort of booking booking the band. So some of the sh- some of the shows were great. And as we, uh, you know, after the first album came out, um, and was getting college radio play. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We did, you know, you know, there were shows where there were very few people, and there were shows where it was really, really great fans. When we went to on the the European tour, we played in like Berlin was like 500 people, and it was they were completely into it. It was wow. just an amazing killer show. And then we we were back in England, and we went to Bath, you know, which is sort of in the western mm-hmm. part of England, and there were maybe. 25 people there wow. and and they were all sort of standing with right. their arms folded why why are, why are we even here <laughs> the thing is that really inspired that John and John yeah. to because they really wanted to win over the audience yeah. they're, they're entertainers they love mm-hmm. people to have a good time and they practically lit their Themselves on, <laughs> lit themselves on fire. Yeah. And by the end, they were real mm-hmm. people. They were really into it. They really won won people over. So, mm-hmm. uh, some sometimes that didn't happen, but usually, like the the Johnny Banana show was uh, was talking about. There was hardly anybody there. It was a Tuesday night. It was yeah. rain, mm-hmm. it was raining. They hadn't really done much promotion, and you know you got to do the show. So whether yeah. Whether there's anybody there or not. Exactly. <laughs> not to go back to the lyrics, but just like the lyrics are so interesting. Does any of that come out? As in their personalities, as people like let's say Linnell's, you know, like his brain is like very interesting. Mm-hmm. Does that? Do you think it's something that just he turns on when he's working and and writing? There were things that got said that later ended up in songs. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. <laughs> do you have an example? Um, I think "Wake Up and Smell the Cat Food" might have. Oh, really? Been something in some conversation <laughs> oh, that's that, funny. That I could see that. You know, just. In idle conversation in yeah. the van while you're going somewhere, and especially when you're tired, you're touring, you're saying stu- you're saying weird stuff. Yeah, and <laughs> you never know what's going to stick. And what's yeah, gonna... that's so. Funny. So, and it was always sort of delightful when you like. I remember that. Yeah, I, yeah. Oh, yeah. That happens yeah, when yeah. I, Dave plays me a new song, or I'll play this. You know, stuff. Yeah, we'll I mean, remember things. We know, we'll know. I know, like what he's referring to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. Bill Krauss. This was fantastic. Cool. Wow. Did you guys like that? I did. I did, too. Thanks so much, Bill, for giving us the goods. Giving us a piece of his mind. Yeah, yeah. And what a piece. He really let us have it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm still, I still have bruises. It's another one for the history books, folks. Yeah, especially the They Might Be Giants focused history books. That so, this New York public school system won't let you read. Yeah. Censoring us. So thanks so much. This has been Don't Let's Start, a podcast about They Might Be Giants. Again, we have a Twitter at Don't Let's Pod. Go to it and give us some likes. And you can also like and rate. 
our yes. podcast on the iTunes. Give us five stars and we'll give you the world. Yeah. Goodbye. Bye-bye. <laughs>